WAMU 88.5. Well, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James. Thanks for listening to our great WAMU 88.5 programming today. So grateful to be here with you. Here's wishing you a contemplative week as we continue to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the genesis of slavery in the United States. This is WAMU 88.5 Washington and WRAU 88.3 Ocean City. It's the big broadcast, and it's 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight is a very special anniversary night in American show business and American culture. On this date, 80 years ago, August 25th, in the magical movie year of 1939, a highly anticipated new film opened in theaters all across America. After the better part of two years in development and production, and the efforts of some 20 writers and a half dozen directors, MGM's The Wizard of Oz began its coast-to-coast conquest. We're going to hear the NBC Good News broadcast that ginned up enthusiasm for the film, with performances by Burt Lahr, Ray Bolger, and, in her first-ever public performance of Over the Rainbow, Judy Garland. And... We'll hear Mr. Lar trade jokes with his host on The Fred Allen Show, Tin Man Jack Haley's program, The Wonder Show, broadcast at the same time he was shooting The Wizard of Oz, and Dragnet, Gunsmoke, Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective, and we'll get the jump on Labor Day with Anne Blythe starring in State Fair on the General Electric Theater. It's an historic night, the ruby anniversary of the ruby slippers and The Wizard of Oz. So clear your throat to sing along, Put aside all the problems of last week and the worries of the next and spend a little time over the rainbow. Your home in the world of old time radio. And as we all know, there's no place like home. It's where you hear the adventures of the man with the action packed expense account. Like this one. Speaking of jewels, the diamond dilemma matter from March 2nd, 1958, CBS, AFRTS and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Deller. Bert Major, Johnny. Masters Insurance and Trust. Oh, hi, Bert. Do you know anything about spacemen? Never saw any, if that's what you mean. Neither have I. But I know somebody who thinks he's been contacted by them. Oh, sure. I have some whimsical friends, too. Not funny, Johnny. The company is betting $2 million that this man is either a liar or pulling one of the biggest hoaxes in history. $2 million? That's right. Conrad Billings. Ever hear of him? Billings. Texas Oil. One of the richest men in the country. Right. Presently of California, where he's holed up in an isolated mountaintop lodge. Minus a $2 million collection of diamonds he took up there with him. And you insured them? Yes. But not against ordinary theft. What does that mean? Those stones were insured against theft by persons or things unknown on this earth. What? That's right. Holy... You... You're serious, aren't you? You bet I'm serious. Okay, Bert, I'll see you at your office. Bob Bailey... 
in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, Act One of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Home Office, Masters Insurance and Trust Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Diamond Dilemma matter. Expense account item one, $3.20 for a taxi to the office of Bert Major. I've known Bert a long time, and he's been in and out of too many deals, big and little, to get excited over nothing. But he was excited now. This whole thing is incredible, Johnny. Fantastic. It's utterly impossible for $2 million worth of diamonds to simply vanish into thin air. So it's impossible. But it's happened. The police out there in California state positively that no man on earth could possibly have gotten to those stones. Then, Bertram, tell me all. All right. Two weeks ago, Conrad Billings called me from his lodge up in Northern California. Said he wanted to insure the diamonds immediately. Over the phone? Over the phone. You're sure it was really he? I'm not that naive. I had the call traced. How come he called you? We've done some business with a wealthy friend of his in Dallas. Uh, recommended. Uh-huh. And he had the stones with him there at the lodge? Yes. And Johnny, it's one of the most isolated spots on earth. You're sure he had them there? He loves diamonds, Johnny. Almost to the point of obsession. He plays with them like a kid plays with marbles. Lord knows he can afford to. So you insured two million worth of diamond marbles over the phone. I did. And you say you weren't naive. Oh, look, uh, a remote lodge, an eccentric old man, some expensive baubles. Ah, a rank amateur could get at him. You haven't listened to me, Johnny. You've missed the point entirely. I wouldn't care if he left the diamonds lying out on, on his front doorstep. I insured those diamonds solely against theft by persons or things unknown on this earth. That's the exact wording of the policy. And now they're gone. Yes. So, someone took them. Prove it. What? Someone. And not something. Now, why would anybody in his right mind want to insure against theft by other than people? I asked myself that question. My answer was that a billionaire in active command of his business empire must be of sound mind. And if he wants to satisfy a whim and is willing to pay for it, why should my company refuse his money? You think maybe he has an obsession about flying saucers and the people or things who fly them? Uh, who knows? Or what knows? Johnny, you've got to go out there and make some sense out of all this. <sighs> who are the contacts so far? The head of his San Francisco office, Norton Shields. The chief of police in Lakeview, about uh, 30 miles from Billings Lodge. And uh, the insurer. Okay, I'll call you, Bert. But not from Mars. Expense account item two, $280, deluxe flight with trimmings, Hartford to San Francisco. A piece of fog was rolling up Market Street. It was 2 a.m. when I finally got to the office of Billings Enterprises and met Norton Shields. He was wide awake, sharp, about 35. Yes, Mr. Dollar, I've been in charge of Billings West Coast operation for 10 years with time out for Korea. Pretty uh, young for such a responsibility. Billings hired me because I know the oil business. I learned it young. Uh-huh. You like him? You don't have to like a man just because you work for him. He's shrewd and knows how to make money. But he has foibles. Yes, he has foibles. Diamonds. Have you ever seen them? Sure. Where? Oh, here in the office, at the lodge where he is now with his home. You're certain he took them up to that lodge? 
Three weeks ago tonight, they were spread out right here on this desk. He put them one by one in a chamois bag, put the bag in his pocket. I walked into his car, and he was driven straight to the lodge. All right. What about the, uh, the, uh, flying saucers, the spacemen, or whatever it is? No. <laughs> That's a new one. I learned of it when Mr. Major Call disclosed the terms of the insurance and the fact that the diamonds had been, uh, well, that they were gone. You haven't talked this over with Billings himself? No, no, I haven't. Don't you think you should? Why? If he wants me, he'll call me. How do I get to this lodge? I have a company plane and pilot ready to fly you to Clear Lake in the morning. You'll be met there by a car and driver. Anything else you want, call me. <laughs> Why all the cooperation when you're not even supposed to know what's going on? A good lieutenant knows when to follow orders before they're issued. You're registered at the Mark Hopkins. You better get some sleep. Yeah, I may need it. of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the Diamond Dilemma Matter. The company plane turned out to be a plush two-engine amphibian waiting for me at a private dock near the Golden Gate Bridge. The pilot introduced himself, and we headed due north up San Pablo Bay and then northwest past the Valley of the Moon. Then, a few minutes later, we glided in for a landing on Clear Lake, the largest body of water in the state of California. There, I was met by a car and a driver as promised. How far is it to Mr. Billings' lodge, driver? About 30 miles. What do you do when Mr. Billings isn't here? Wait for him. Do you, uh, live at the lodge? Nobody does. Just Mr. Billings. No caretakers? Housekeepers? Anything like that? Just Mr. Billings. Well, surely there must be someone to look, look after. Mister, I'm hired to drive a car. I do it. And that's all. <laughs> The car twisted and turned through some lush country, then left the highway and climbed a narrow mountain road with signs every couple of hundred yards marked private in big letters. After several miles of this, during which we passed through a couple of gates that had to be opened manually, we came to a high steel wire gate with equally high fencing stretching out in either direction. A small redwood blockhouse squatted inside. The driver made a U-turn, stopped in front of this gate, then reached around and opened the door. This is it, mister. This is it? Yep. Okay, if you say so. But if this is a millionaire's idea... Hey, hey, wait a minute! Huh. Well, if this really is the place, I may as well get... Can't you read? You touch that gate and you'll be electrocuted. What? Your name, Dollar? That's right. Who are you and what's the idea... Speak up! Where were you at exactly two o'clock yesterday afternoon? Well, if it means anything to you, I was talking with a man named Bert Major in Hartford, Connecticut. Come in. The big gate swung open, and I gingerly walked through it, as per instruction from the loudspeaker nestled in the wall of the Redwood Blockhouse. You drive, don't you? Yes. Then get in that car you see there and follow the road. The car referred to by the voice was parked against the blockhouse on the far side. I did as I was told. After a while, the road narrowed to a single track and continued on up the mountain. At one point, there was a solid granite overhang, a sheer drop of a thousand feet or more, and another gate that opened as I approached it and closed behind me. 
Finally, I rounded a turn where a fill had been made, and a moment later came out on top. A few hundred yards away, across the terrace top of the mountain, was a charming rustic lodge. I drove over to it. Good morning, Mr. Dollar. Mr. Billings? Come in, come in. Hearing about this man was strange enough. Seeing him was even more of a shock. About five foot two, flashing gray eyes, bullet bald. He was wearing a baggy old jacket that hung nearly to his knees. This way, I want you to see my view of the lakes below. Well? Beautiful. What was that? I said, I said beautiful. Yes. Yes, it is. Now, Mr. Major has informed you of the insurance on my diamonds, which disappeared two nights ago. Yes, sir. He told me that... Speak you... up! He told me you insured two million dollars worth of diamonds against theft by persons or things unknown on this earth. Exactly. And I wish to collect from your company on that basis. Well, I... Tell me, where did you keep them? Right here on this table in front of the window. Right here. You mean to say you didn't lock up such valuable property? <laughs> Mr. Dollar, let me show you something. Look here, on my control panel. Do you recall the series of gates you passed through after leaving the main road? Yeah, very well. Well, by means of my electronic devices, I followed your progress every inch of the way. Well, I'll be done. I watched your arrival at the main gate on this video screen. Ingenious, eh? That's putting it mildly. What did you say? I say that's putting it mildly. Yes. As I'm sure you noticed, this mountaintop is completely encircled by a 12-foot electrified fence. Between it and the inner fence is a maze of photoelectric cells. This panel controls floodlights with which I can cover every inch of ground between the two fences. These viewers are geared to the floodlights. All of this equipment is automatically activated on contact. In short, Mr. Dollar... I can detect and follow any person or thing which moves through or between these two fences. Anyone who knows electricity could cut your fences and come right on up the road. I did not say this mountaintop was impregnable. I said no one could reach it without my knowledge. Why did you take out such limited insurance on your diamonds, Mr. Billings? I've made my money by leaving nothing, absolutely nothing, to chance. Now that man has projected objects into outer space, it is reasonable to assume that other planets may be ahead of us in technical endeavors. Diamonds would be of tremendous value to an unknown civilization. Well, look, how do I know this is not just an elaborate scheme to collect two million dollars? A fair question, Mr. Dollar. What would prevent you from hiding those diamonds somewhere on this mountain? I should consider that question an affront to my integrity, but under the circumstances, I do not. I simply defy you to find them. Then, what's your explanation of their disappearance? I have none. And unless you find one, I intend to collect from your company under the terms of the policy. Uh, Mr. Major mentioned the uh, chief of police in Lakeview. Do you mind if I talk to him? Andy Prentice? Not at all. I have a direct phone to his office and his home. Would you care to talk to him now? Uh, no, thanks. But I would like to use your car. By all means, I'll open the gates for you uh, on your way down. Uh, just one point. There must be no publicity on this matter. Understood? Mr. Billings, if I can't prove that your diamonds were taken by a person, those space cats are going to get a lot of publicity. 
And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Diamond Dilemma Matter. While I drove down the mountain with gates electronically opening and closing behind me, I did some thinking. Billings had bought and paid for his privacy at tremendous cost. I couldn't see any loopholes in the setup. Yet, the diamonds had disappeared. Hmm. Forty-five minutes later, I pulled up in front of the police station in Lakeview. Obviously, I was expected by the chief of police, Andy Prentice. Well, Mr. Dollar, my name's Prentice. Mind if I join you? Um, no. No, hop in. Just cruise down by the lake. I'm sure you want this to be a private conversation, too. Good idea. Well, what's your opinion on the diamonds? Well, I don't know who took them. But I'll tell you one thing. I don't believe it was some thing or somebody from outer space. Well, how would you get through all those electrified fences, photoelectric cells, floodlights, and closed-circuit viewers? Uh, yeah... Well, what's your opinion? Uh, I'm as practical and logical as the next fella. If a human being couldn't get to Mr. Billings without his knowledge, and he'd call me the moment somebody tried... Well, oh, sure. Spaceman. Well, what else? I noticed one thing, Chief. He's a little hard of hearing and doesn't wear a hearing aid. He doesn't need one. Just turns up the volume on all that electronic stuff he has around him. Well, suppose someone parachuted onto the top of that mountain. How would he get out? man could dig under those fences. That would leave evidence, and I've been over every inch of the ground. I've even thought of the expert pole vaulter idea. No sign. Nothing makes any sense. Yeah, I see what you mean. How about a ride in Billings' private plane? I'd like to take a look at that mountain from the air. I don't know what good it'll do you, but I'll go along. Well, maybe there are spacemen, but I still don't believe it. See the road winding up? And, and and there's the lodge. Yeah. I asked the pilot to circle around the top as close as the air pockets will permit. Good. Chief, have the pilot drop down just below the top and steer a course between the two fences all the way around. Whatever you say. Oh, pilot! For the next few minutes, I studied the top of that mountain from all possible angles. The road leading up to it, the terraces, the lodge itself. Suddenly, an idea hit me. And a few minutes later, I left a somewhat puzzled chief of police at the landing dock on Clear Lake. An hour later, I was explaining who I was and what I wanted to do to a somewhat incredulous captain of police at San Francisco's International Airport. I finally convinced him I wasn't out of my mind, and he reluctantly agreed to cooperate. Then, about dusk, I found myself exactly where I wanted to be, on top of Billings Mountain, calmly walking toward the lodge. Good evening, Mr. Billings. What? I said good evening, sir. Mr. Dollar. Why, I can't... I don't understand. See? No space suit. Why, I... I can't believe it. How did you do it? How did you get here? The same way as the man who stole your diamonds. But this is impossible. Impossible. My electric system gave me no warning. That's because you have it located in the wrong place. What? It's in the two fences and between them halfway down the mountain. Above them, there is one level spot, 50 yards across, that isn't covered by your automatic whistles and bells. But it isn't, and it isn't, uh, it, 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 it's not necessary. Wrong. It's just big enough for a helicopter, which is waiting for me out there right now. A helicopter? You didn't see us because we came in and landed below your line of sight. You didn't hear us because you don't wear a hearing aid. 
I can't believe it. But it's I. You must be right. And you'll have to agree that your diamonds were not stolen by persons or things unknown on this earth. The terms of the policy. Of course, of course. I disallow all claim, but I... Good, good. Now, uh, it's uh, none of my business, Mr. Billings, but was your San Francisco manager, Norton Shields, a pilot during the time he was in Korea? Why, yes. He flew rescue missions in a helicopter. Yeah. The company that insured your diamonds against ordinary theft might be interested to learn that. Good night, Mr. Billings. Yes. Good night, Mr. Tala. You know, in some ways, I felt sorry for him. He'd spent millions of dollars to insure his diamonds and his privacy. Came a real showdown, and it turned out he had neither. Oh, he'll get his diamonds back, sure, and probably buy some more. But privacy, with or without money, is a pretty hard thing to come by. At least in this man's world. Expense account total, including incidentals and transportation back to Hartford, $284.30. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a moth, a tiny moth, solves a case involving our national security. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Today's story was written by Alan Botsey. Heard in our cast were Edwin Jerome, Paul Dubois, Frank Gerstle, Junius Matthews, and Marvin Miller. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Dan Coverly speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Outer space was very much on people's minds in March of 1958 when that episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar aired. It's called The Diamond Dilemma Matter, and you heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tonight's the 80th anniversary of the wide national release of The Wizard of Oz. And over the past couple of years, we've featured radio performances by most of the stars of that movie, including Ray Bolger, Judy Garland, Jack Haley, and Frank Morgan. But somehow, we haven't featured the man who played the cowardly lion, the immortal Burt Lahr. Actually, maybe it's not so strange. Mr. Lahr achieved his greatest success and his giant stardom, on the Broadway stage, although he did do a bit of radio, beginning with appearances on Rudy Valley's shows in the early 1930s. Tonight, we're going to hear a little hint of what made him so great on stage. It's an excerpt from a Fred Allen show in 1939, while The Wizard of Oz was playing in movie theaters throughout the country. In addition to Messrs. Allen and Lar, you'll hear the announcer, Harry Von Zell, and Mr. Allen's wife and foil, Portland Hoffa and they make much of Bert Lahr's supremacy. 
He was the comedian on Broadway, and his signature singing style had him rolling in the aisles. There are other theater references to the actor Walter Hampton and to the play Amphitryon 38. And you'll hear jokes about the show's sponsor, Ipana Toothpaste, the radio detective Bulldog Drummond, and remember that the big toll bridges into Manhattan had opened in the 1930s. From October 11th, 1939 and NBC, here's an appearance by Burt Lahr on The Fred Allen Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we present our invited guest, a man who comes to glorify the evening, a comedian. <laughs> oh, now, wait a minute, Harry. Try to hold in. Well, I can't hold in, Fred. I just saw him outside. Does he look funny? <laughs> yes. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this hilarious chap is... <laughs> oh, now, poor Glenn. I saw him in the Wizard of Oz. Oh, boy, is he a wow! Quiet, quiet, you two. That guy's a riot. <laughs> yes, that's what everybody says, folks. Meet the funniest man in the world, Bert Lars. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. You're a scream, Mr. Lars. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, everybody, for this boisterous welcome. Well... <laughs> Well, Bert, you're the funniest man in the world, so I'm going to keep quiet now and just let you get funny. Well, Fred, I, uh... uh let's go, Bertie, old boy. Well, uh... <laughs> this is embarrassing, Fred. Uh, I don't know how to tell you. Well, to tell me what, Bert? I don't feel funny. <laughs> after that build-up, you don't feel funny. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things, I guess. I was funny all morning. I had the chambermaid screaming around the hotel. <laughs> the two I caught. Well, if you were funny around the... Uh... I, I was funny all afternoon. You were? Over in Lindy's, a fly flew in my soup. Yeah? I called the waiter over and said... <laughs> Take this soup spoon and bring me a fly swatter. Did they laugh? Laugh. <laughs> Twenty diners dropped their racing forms. <laughs> That's what I can't understand, Fred. All day long, you might say, I've I've been a pixie on the wing, a gay blade, a, a spontaneous pantaloon. But right now, I don't, don't feel, feel funny. funny. I heard you on Bing Crosby's program, Mr. Lar, and you were witty. I was brilliant, Portland. Remember that gag I told about the two patients meeting in Mayo's clinic? <laughs> the first patient says, oh, this will kill you. <laughs> the first patient says, I'm aching from the riders. And the second patient says, <laughs> I'm Mandelbaum from Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I was a rowdy that night. <laughs> I was in the groove with Crosby. Well, you don't. I, I can't understand what's, uh, what's the matter with you tonight. You don't think it's something mental. Mental with me? <laughs> Quit kidding. <laughs> well, you know, it could be your libido, Bert. Yeah, maybe it's my subconscious. Maybe I ought to see a psychoamethyst or something. <laughs> you know, with Crosby, I was another man. Oh, and could we use the other man right now? <laughs> I can't understand why you can be funny with Crosby and with me, nothing. Well, I don't know, Fred. I, I, I think I like to work with Bing. He, he gives me something. Well, I'm giving you something. <laughs> yeah, but with Bing, it was money. <laughs> 
I see what you mean. You, in other words, are averse to barter. Look, I'm broad-minded, Fred, but after all, what can I do with 200 tubes of toothpaste? <laughs> yes, I get your uh, your point, Bert. After all... <laughs> I'm a print killer. After all, if you don't feel funny, let's forget the comedy tonight. We'll just kibitz around and chew the fat. You know, the public can't always expect a comedian to be funny. That's what I say. People think if one comedian is funny, two comedians should be twice as funny. Oh, it's silly. Now, here we are, you and I. You're a comedian, and I'm a comedian. We're together. Are we twice as funny? To the contrary. To corner phrase. <laughs> to corner phrase. Well, let's stop the whole thing. Say, how come you left Hollywood, Bert? You must have had a reason. Yes, Fred. Hollywood went too far. It was up to me. Well, what, what did you do? It was my turn to go too far. So I got on a train and came east. Oh, you mean out there you were getting in a rut artistically? Yeah, I was tired of being a great lover. You want <laughs> You wanted to get away from it all. Well, most of it. There was a little blonde at Metro who might have intrigued me, but <laughs> the silly little minx let me get away. Say, hey, you must have taken it hard. I was momentarily frustrated. Really? I renounced the human race. I sought solace in the animal kingdom. Oh, and that is how you came to play the lion in The Wizard of Oz? I would have played a flea on Bulldog Drummond. <laughs> Well, you certainly did a swell job, Bert. You still look like a lion to me. That's the trouble. I got too far into character. <laughs> Why, I was even starting to molt. <laughs> I, uh, I can tell by the top of your head. Uh... <laughs> well, are you continuing your animal characterization? Not me. I'm... I'm sick of making a living on all fours. I want to play Ibsen, Chekhov, Odette. You know, one of those parts where I keep sipping cyanide of potassium all through the second act. Well, do you really think you can play one of those serious roles? Why not? What have I got that if John Barrymore had, he'd get rid of right away? Why, why should a successful comedian want to play tragedy? Oh, I'm a ham at heart, Fred. Give me a pair of spats, a bamboo cane, and a nod from all of Hampton, <laughs> and I'm in ecstasy. Say, what do you expect to do when you retire, Bert? Oh, I don't know. I may open a small toll bridge or something. <laughs> well, now that we know your ambitions, what are you going to do here in the East besides fend off senility? I'm going into a new musical show, a sequel to Amphitryon 39. What's it called? Butterfield 4230. <laughs> Does the uh, show look like a hit? Oh, yes. It's a little gem. <laughs> We're rehearsing in Tiffany's window. You're, uh, you're playing the lead, of course. No, it's just a bit. 92 sides. A bit. Yeah, I'm on the stage two hours before the play begins. <laughs> I'm ever-present, but unimportant. Well, what sort of a show is it, Bert? Well, the best way I can describe it is, uh... It's a 17th century hell's a poppin'. It is. I thought hell's a poppin' went farther back than that. <laughs> 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 
Well, what, uh, what character do you assume? Well, in the first act, I'm a subdued knave. A subdued knave. In the second act, I'm a tippet mender. Oh, you mend tippets, do you? <laughs> and in the last act, I play Gaspard Levine, the muscle man in a bistro. <laughs> you run the artistic uh, gamut, as it were. Yes. I range from the tentatively foul to the delightfully obnoxious. <laughs> In other words, you ignore the audience's heartstrings to get right to their nostrils. To put it bluntly, yes. <laughs> My big scene is in the second act. As the tippet mender, I am discovered in Madame Pompadour's hope chair. Uh -huh. The king is bibbing in the anteroom. A Florentine enters. I suspect poltroonery. I tried Pompadour. When she is well chidden, <laughs> I divert her. She has choosed me. I gesundheit her. <laughs> the Florentine offers to roll the dice for Pompadour's favors. The dice are cards. I'm undone. Curtain. Just in time. It sounds like a great play, Bert. Yes. They just grabbed the author for observation. <laughs> uh, are, you, uh, are you singing in this show, Bert? Well, nothing to speak of. Uh, I cajole Madame Pompadour with a... You do? Yeah. Well, say, how about a little chanson uh, now, before you go? I hoped you would ask me to sing tonight, Fred. I yeah. really did. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I want to get even with a guy in St. Paul. <laughs> and what form is your revenge taking, Bert? Well, I'll catch up with an old request. Roses of Picardy. Roses of Picardy. Lost the words. Wait a minute, Peter. I've got him, Fred. Roses are shining in a Picardy in the hush of a silvery dew. Roses are. In the Picardy, but there's never a like you. And the roses will die with the summertime, and our rose may be far farther apart. But there's a one rose that dies a lot. In a Picardy, <laughs> that I keep in my heart. Not as the Cowardly Lion, on The Fred Allen Show during the initial run of The Wizard of Oz in movie theaters in the fall of 1939. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. One of Fred Allen's closest friends was another star of the picture whose 80th anniversary we're celebrating tonight. It was the Tin Man, Jack Haley, who, just as Mr. Allen, had started out in vaudeville. By 1939, he was a well-known song and dance man who had made his mark on the stage, in several movies, 
and on his own radio show. We're going to hear one of those shows now, from just a couple of weeks after Mr. Haley had been hired to replace Buddy Ebsen in The Wizard of Oz. A terrible reaction to the Tin Man's aluminum-based makeup had landed Mr. Ebsen in the hospital, and it had nearly killed him. The program's called The Wonder Show, after the sponsor, Wonder Bread, and Hostess Cupcakes. It features the announcer, Gail Gordon, whom we know best from his role as Mr. Conklin on Our Miss Brooks, the caricatured Yiddish accent of Artie Auerbach, a joke about the labor organization, the CIO, and several really good sound effects jokes. From November 11th, 1938, and CBS, it's Jack Haley's The Wonder Show. The Wonder Show, presented by Wonder Bread. Starring Jack Haley, with Lucille Ball, Virginia Vettel, Artie Arbach, Ted Fiorito and his orchestra, and the happy Wonder Baker. And now we bring you that fugitive from a political landslide whose jokes are old enough to vote, but they never register, Jack Haley. Thank you. Gail, why must you always start our program by heckling me? I listen to other radio shows and the announcers never pan the comedian. Well, other announcers are better paid than I am. Well, I can't afford to pay you anymore. All I'm getting on this program is chicken feed. Oh, no wonder you lay so many eggs. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Gail. You can criticize me personally, but not my comedy. My jokes are like Fred Allen's. They're tried and true. Yeah, Fred Allen tried them and threw them out. <laughs> now, look here, Gail. If something is bothering you, what's the matter? Well, frankly, Jack, I wouldn't mind my small salary so much if I at least got it. But this is our fifth program. I still haven't been paid for the first one. Well, for that matter, I haven't been paid yet. But I'm not worried. The Continental Bacon Company is the largest in the world. I happen to know that the checks were sent out three weeks ago from New York by special messenger. So don't worry. Don't lose any sleep about your salary. I'm not. Oh, no? And how come your eyes are so bloodshot? That's from eating grapefruit. <laughs> you know how those things squirt. Well, the grapefruit squirting may explain your eyes being bloodshot, but uh, how come your left eye is swollen? Well, that's where the cherry hit me. You know that little cherry oh. that they have? They <laughs> Gosh, to hear you talk, Gail, one would think you were the only one in this show that needs money. Look at me. Yesterday, I had to go out and buy a pair of rubbers. Did you get them? Yes. Well, if you got the rubbers, what are you complaining about? Well, they're not as comfortable as shoes. <laughs> but even if we haven't been paid yet, don't complain. I'm not. Well, you should, Jack. Aren't you a member of the union? Sure. I'm a member of the CIO. A member of the CIO? Sure. Look at these bills. CIO the butcher, CIO the baker, CIO... <laughs> Hello, Jack. Hello, Gail. What's the matter, Lucille? You sound all out of breath. Have you been running? Yes, and what a narrow escape. One of my creditors from the place I buy my clothes was chasing me. Did you give him the slip? No, that's what he was after. <laughs> come, come, Lucille. It isn't that bad. You don't have to worry. The checks will be here any moment now. After all, you shouldn't be that hard up. 
You're eating, aren't you? Eating? I'm so hungry, every time someone introduces me at a party and says meatball, my mouth waters. <laughs> and besides, you know winter is coming and I haven't a drop of coal in the house. And boy, is that house freezing. Is it really freezing in your house? Freezing? It's so cold the canary is walking around like a penguin. <laughs> well, Lucille... You have to expect these emergencies arising. You should be prepared by cutting down on expenses. I can't, Jack. Being in pictures like I am, I have to keep up appearances. Mm -hmm. I have to buy the best of clothes, and they're all imported, too. Look at these shoes. A thousand hard-earned marks in Vienna. Look at this hat. Five hundred hard-earned marks in Berlin. Mm, how did you get that coat? One easy mark in Hollywood. <laughs> well, Lucille, you must learn to save and cut down on expenses. Oh, don't mind him, Lucille. He tells that to everybody, but doesn't do it himself. Oh, yes, I do. I'm really economizing. Why, each time I go to the barber, I tell him to give me a shorter haircut. Oh, you're cutting down to the bone. Now, oh, <laughs> Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Ted. Oh, oh, look at you. How did you get that black eye? Oh, I got that from overeating. Now, wait a minute. How can you get a black eye from overeating? I ate more than I could pay for. <laughs> now, Ted, don't tell me that you're broke, too. Broke? Why, I'm practically... Why, I'm practically a papa. You mean pop... Uh, pop pauper. Pauper. Jack... I don't know. I don't know how I'll be able to pay that feed bill for my racehorse. You have a racehorse? Yes, and he has to eat. Oh, you mean you need hay for his father. Let his father get his own hay. <laughs> Besides, I also need the money for his entry fee. Look, here's a picture of my horse. I'm entering him in a steak race. Mmm, not a bad hunk of steak. <laughs> don't worry, your money is safe, Ted. The checks will be here any minute now. I don't know about that. Listen, come here, Jack. I just heard a rumor about those checks, and it's got me quite upset. Yeah? What was the rumor? I heard our sponsor's in trouble. Our sponsor's in trouble? What did you hear? They're saying that the man who makes Wonder Bread needs dough. Of course he needs dough, you dope. He's a baker. Hey, Jack. The messenger's here with the checks. Oh, that's marvelous. Show them in. Ted, play something, will you, while I sort out the checks for the cast? Oh, that's
Now, wait a minute. There are couples who don't go out and pet in cars. Yeah, the woods are full of them. <laughs> oh, come, come, come. Don't dilly-dilly. Do you want to buy? Make up your mind. Yes or maybe? <laughs> well, what is the standard equipment of the car you're trying to sell me? A tow rope and a nickel. I can understand what the tow rope is for, but why the nickel? To telephone the nearest garage. <laughs> no, no. Hasn't it got any special features? Oh, special features. Lots of them. Look here. All the lights have two adjustments. Dim and bright? No, out and completely out. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't like your car. It's too clumsy. It's too clumsy? Yes, and your horn is too large. That thing you got ain't no button. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you. I might take the car if I get a good allowance on my old one. Oh, you got an old car. Sure. Mm-hmm. You can see it right here from the window. Look out oh, there. Oh, yeah. See that one there? Mm-hmm. Now, how much of an allowance will you give me on it? An allowance? You expect to get yet an allowance for that old jalopy? Jalopy? I'll have you understand that's a political car. What do you mean, a political car? It manufactures its own gas and blows its own horn. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. No. But do you know something... Hey, wait a minute. Yet? You've been hiding something from me. Well, Look at that car in your catalog. Well, On page six there. Oh, that's a beautiful model. What? That broken old drunk? That broken down junkie? That old tin can you call that a car? I wouldn't give you for that car fifty fifty dollars. I wouldn't give you ten dollars for that car. Did I hear myself say ten dollars? For that car you couldn't even get for me fifty cents. Just a second, just a second. I'm selling, not buying. <laughs> Lovely Virginia Vettel sings the modern melody, Ten Pins in the Sky. Did you ever wonder why in thunder, thunder comes in spring? Well, once upon a time it seemed all the world was wrapped in dreams. Playful little fellows, so they tell us, said, let's have our fling. Spring is in the air, you know, and it's time to wake them up, below. Oh, when the thunder starts to thunder, don't run home and cry They're playing ten pins in the sky Little fellas way up yonder Make the raindrops fly While rolling, bowling, ten pins in the sky The world will wear a new bonnet And daffodils on it Thanks to the skies above Thunder and showers wake up the flowers Whether a flower there must be love oh, Laugh at rain, laugh, laugh at thunder Love will soon roll by They're playing tending in the Run home and cry for the playing ten pins in the sky. Hear the bowling, rolling ten pins in the sky. The world will wear a new 
on it, daffodils on it, thanks to the skies up above. Thunder and showers wake up the flowers, where there are flowers and must be love. Oh, laugh at me, laugh at Cupcakes made of such mouth-watering devil's food and such thick, creamy frosting that your husband will say they're as fine as those his mother baked. Now, if you say that's impossible, I'm sure you haven't been getting Hostess Cupcakes. Because Hostess Cupcakes are different. Now, here's proof. Bake cupcakes at home with the best recipe you can find. Compare them with Hostess Cupcakes. If Hostess Cupcakes aren't better, don't cost you less, you get double your money back. We can make this exceptional offer because only really fine ingredients are used. And each cake is guaranteed to be oven fresh when you buy it. Hence, no chance of getting stale cake. So look for Hostess Cupcakes at your grocer. You get a package of two fresh Hostess Cupcakes for only five cents. So tomorrow, treat the whole family to these marvelous cupcakes. They'll all thank you. Oh, Virginia. Come here a minute, will you? Yes, Jack. You know, Virginia, every time I look at you, I keep thinking of what a beautiful baby you must have been. Well, my mother thought so, Jack. Well, does your mother realize the stork delivered quite a prize? You mean the day I landed on the family tree? Yeah. And does your dad appreciate? He thinks that I am super great. The miracle of any century. And if they don't just send them both to me... Must have been a beautiful baby. You must have been a wonderful child. Why, Jack, when I was only starting to go to kindergarten, I tried to drive the little boys wild. And when it came to winning blue ribbons, you must have shown the other kids how. You should have seen the judge's eyes when he handed me the prize. I'll bet you made the cutest ball. Oh, you must have been a beautiful baby. Cause, baby, look at you now. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about to pick the winner in the Million Dollar Baby Contest. Mothers of the runners-up will now bring their babies forward to be judged. <laughs> well, 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 well. Here's a cute baby. No, 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 no. Let's see what the tag says. Uh, Lucille Ball. Some kid, isn't she? Uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, nice teeth, uh... Can you say something, Lucille? Oh, 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 oh. My goodness. An ill-mannered child, isn't she? Oh, good heavens. What's this goofy-looking kid doing in the contest? Uh, what's his name? Uh, John Joseph Aloysius Haley. Oh, what funny-looking eyes. Oh, but he's a strong youngster. Uh, tell me, Johnny, how did you get those muscles? Uh, uh, eating Wonder Bread. <laughs> oh, Jackie, watch it. Well, look at this cute baby. <laughs> tell me, what's your name, little girl? Virginia Vara. Ah, kitty, 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 coo. <laughs> nice hair, nice eyes, nice teeth. <laughs> and I'm pretty, too. Ladies and gentlemen, I announce the winner.
of the baby contest, Virginia Barrow. When it comes to winning blue ribbons, you really show us other kids how. And I'm not a bit surprised that they're handing you the prize. Just watch me while I take my bow. Oh, you must have been a beautiful baby. Well, baby, take a look at me now. Now, oh, babe. Baby, take a look at me now. And her assistant singing, You Must Have Been a Beautiful Baby. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for our weekly trip through my family album. Tonight, I'm going to tell you the story about my great-great-great-grandfather on my great-granduncle's side, Julius Caesar Haley, the noblest Roman of them all, Lucille. Just look at this picture. What a puss. <laughs> now, listen, he was a great man a long time ago in the day, days when Rome fell. It must have fallen on him. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Julius Caesar Haley was a great general who always led his troops to victory. Now, our story opens on the battlefield of Rome during the Great War with Mark Anthony. The great Caesar is drilling his troops. Halt! Attention, men. Eyes left, eyes right, eyes left, eyes right, eyes left, eyes right. Perfect, men, perfect. Now you'll be able to watch the tennis matches. Roll call. Soundeth off. Octavius. Flavius. Cassius. Gorgeous. Obnoxious. <laughs> hey, thou at the end there. Who art thou? I'm scrumptious. <laughs> I feel it in a very playful mood. You noble warriors have been very faithful, and I want thee to kneel down. Art thou going to knight us, Caesar? No, I'm going to play a leapfrog. Kneel it down. Here I goeth. Ouchus! Oh, pardon me. I forgot us to take off my sword. <laughs> the generals are waiting for thee, Caesar. I must goeth into the barracks for a council of war. Men, thou knowest my heart is with thee. Ray, Caesar! I've reigned over thee for five years and made thee very happy. What more dost thou want? Hail, Caesar! <laughs> Well, I'll try it, but you soldiers are certainly hardest to please. I go now to the barracks to see my general. Hail, mighty Caesar! Well, general, what have thee to report? In two weeks, mighty Caesar, I will bring thee turkey. Fine, Octavius. What say you, Aurelius? In two weeks, I will bring, bring thee grease. You almost didn't bring it. <laughs> Fine. Just think. In two weeks, I will have turkey and grease. What a thanksgiving. <laughs> Caesar! Caesar! What is it, messenger? I have the map thou wanted. Fine. Where is it? I came through enemy territory, so I had it tattooed on my back. That was clever. Didst thou have any trouble? Yes, Caesar. The enemy struck me with spears and stones. Is the map safe? Well, Norway and Sweden are okay, but you'll never recognize South Africa. <laughs> never mind. You have done it well. I shall reward thee. See, I give thee this flower from the wreath on my head. But, sire, this is an awfully large flower. Gadzooks, it's my toupee. <laughs> give it back. There, is it on right? If it is, Caesar, thy neck has a mustache. Uh, that's uh... 
Be gone and on thy way. Have the bugler sound attack. Yes, Emperor. I should have attacked the bugler. Caesar, are ye prepared to attack? Not yet. We need reinforcements. But we have one ray of hope. My sweetheart Cleopatra is on the way here, and she bringeth her army with her. When she arriveth, General, we will have nothing to fear. Caesar! Caesar! What is it, Vespasius? They're feeding me and ten other guys to the line. Then what art thou doing here? Oh, I got plenty of time. I'm dessert. <laughs> Heaven help those lions. Here ye, here ye, here comes Cleopatra! Siren. <laughs> ah, Cleo, my loved one. You are here. Hello, Julius. <laughs> thou hast arrived just in time. Believe it me, Cleo. Come, let us sit down and talk at things over. Okay, Snook. I dismiss yon slave who is waving the palm leaf. But it's hot in here. Worrieth not. Just rest thy head on my shoulder and I'll fan thee with my eyelashes. <laughs> ah, Cleo, wouldst thou kiss me? I wilt. Wait till I kiss you. <laughs> ah, do kiss me, Cleo. <sighs> ah, Caesar. It is well thou art emperor of Rome. You look like a ruler. Every inch of you. <laughs> yes, Cleo. What king does I look like? King Tut. <laughs> Ah, Cleopatra, be mine. I'll see to it that the world never forgets you. Each time you press thy lips to mine, I will build a new temple. Put your arms around me and I will build thee a new stadium. Hold me tight and I will build thee the greatest building in the city. Take it easy, big boy. Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> why dost thou like me, Cleopatra? I'm the greatest... I mean, why dost thou not like me, Cleopatra? <laughs> I was a little indecided there. <laughs> I'm the greatest general in the world. I am a Napoleon. I'd rather have a hostess cupcake. <laughs> oh, don't jest about me. I am the great Caesar. I will bring you wealth. I will bring you success. I will bring you prosperity. The above is a paid political announcement and is not the opinion of this state nor the sponsor. Caesar, Caesar, the enemy has attacked. The men want you to leave the march. I'm not Caesar. I'm Susan. <laughs> I'm vice versa. That's right, Caesar. Don't go. Stay beside me and rest on your laurels. Sit us down. I will. Ouch! Oh. What's the matter? There's a thorn in my laurels. Caesar, thy enemy cometh closer. I must prepare for battle. Slave, give me my steel helmet. Give me my steel breastplate. Give me my steel shin guard. What was that? You dropped your handkerchief. <laughs> Look, Cleo, our men are meeting the enemy. They're fighting hand to hand. Caesar, Caesar, the enemy has overpowered us. They will be upon us any moment. Flee, sire, flee for thy life. Quick, bring me thy horses. All the horses have been captured. Make haste, sire. I'll save thee, Caesar. Come, we will escape in my boat. There's no use, your majesties. All the boats have been destroyed. Come, Cleo. Quick, 
There are still the chariots. No, Master. The chariots have all been destroyed by fire. But we must get away. Isn't there anything we could possibly ride in? Yeah, man. I got that dilapidate with double windshield by just French Old Man Friday every Friday at the same hour. Good night. Yo-ho, yo-ho, yo-ho ahead. We are the bakers of Wonder Bread. For Mama and Papa and Nellie and Ned. And also for little sister. We are the bakers in spots of white. Who spend the polish and shining bright. Who bid you now a happy good night. A rock for the Wonder Bread. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Yo-ho. You know him as the Tin Man, but radio audiences knew him as Jack Haley, star of The Wonder Show, and that episode from Armistice Day 1938 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey co-produces the show. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. Nothing has a greater psychological impact on us than family life. So a psychological Western like Gunsmoke often deals with families. That's the case in tonight's episode. It's called I Don't Know, and it comes from December 6th, 1952, CBS and Gunsmoke. Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with the U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. you got there, Chester? Oh, yeah, half kid, Mr. Dillon. I'll smack you flat on the Hold way. it now. You don't stop that kid. Now hold it. You want me to take a strap to you? Now hold it. You best lock him up somewhere, Mr. Dillon. It's safer that way. All right, Chester, just calm down. Now you come over here, son. Sit down. Come on. Look out, Mr. Dillon. He's got hold of your gun. Okay. Now you sit there. And don't you move an inch. You hear me? Not one inch. He is a mean little bug. Now what's it all about, Chester? 
What's he done? I ain't done nothing. Now, you hush your mean little face. This here place is the law, and you're talking to What's he done, Chester? I ain't done nothing. There, you hear that? Chester. Yes, sir. Grocer, I I don't rightly know what he's done. That's what I told you. I ain't done nothing. Mr. Dillon, I was walking down to the office when I see this, this kid. I know most all the sprouts in town, but not him, so I says, hello, and he starts running. That's what he did? Yes, sir. And that's why you brought him in here? I sure did, Mr. Dillon. I figured if a kid runs away from me for doing nothing, then he's been up to something, so he must have done something. You know what I mean? No. Now, what's your name, son? I ain't done nothing. All right. Now, what's your name? I ain't saying. There, you see what I mean, Mr. Dillon? Just plain, ornery, mischievous... You live here in Dodge? I ain't saying. All right. Well, he's probably a runaway, Chester. I guess we'll have to lock him up until somebody comes looking for him, huh? Best thing in this whole wide world to do, Mr. Dillon. Just look at where he gnawed my thumb. Best thing to do. Come on, you. ain't going to lock me up. You got a better idea? We got to do something with you. Let me be on my way. Well, where do you live? About four miles out. Oh. Oh, sure, sure, I know you. You're, uh, the Macklin kid. No, I ain't. I'm Danny Bush, but... I ain't Sam. There, I knew he wasn't town kid. I just knew that, Mr. Dillon. What did I tell you? Nothing. Now, if you'll just close up a minute, Chester, we can get this settled and Danny can go on his way. Now, you say you haven't done anything wrong, son? No. Your ma know you're in Dodge this morning? Guess so. Huh? All your chores done before you came? No. Well, maybe you better go on back then, huh? Your ma might be kind of worried. Guess so. You, uh, got a horse? Yeah. Okay. So long. And take it easy. I can go now? Sure. Go ahead, Danny. You're a marshal, Dylan, ain't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess I come to Dodge to fetch you. My sister sent me. Oh? I wasn't going to, but I got to now because I promised Lily. She made me swear on Rattler's buttons. I figured if I didn't see, I wouldn't be telling no lie if I told her you wasn't around. Now I see you. Now, 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 hold on. Your sister wants me to come out with you to your place, is that it? Yeah. Why? On account of Paw. None of us gives a hoot except in Sister Lillian. She's just acting like a girl. Oh, what's happened to your pa? He's gone off again, shooting up the cattle. Thing is, he took two guns with him this time and a whole mess of bullets. Lily's just scared. Your pa been drinking a little, maybe? I guess. Anyhow, he goes loco and stays that way for a long while. But it's like Dave and Donald say. He'll get over it. He always does. They're my brothers, Dave and Donald. They ain't worrying. Uh-huh. Now, you want me to go out with you to help find him. Is that it? I don't want it. Lily does. And I just wore on railroad buttons that I'd fetch you. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Well, it's good that you did. Uh, Chester, get your stuff, will you? We'll ride out with Danny. I didn't get anything more out of the boy on the way out to the Birch place. No one in town knew much about the family... They'd moved in about a year earlier, came up from the territories. The folks about said Birch and his brood kept pretty much to themselves. 
Like never been any trouble with anybody. I looked at the boy riding his horse bareback. He was nice looking enough, but there was something the matter with his mouth. It was too hard. He could tell he wasn't a kid who did much smiling. Maybe with his paw acting that way, I didn't blame him. He sure rode his horse proud, though. It was hot and dry, and by the time we were inside of the birch place, the sun was burning down hard. Yeah, there he is. Kid, get off on that horse and get over here. I'm going to get yourself a licking. Well, he made me go. It's not my fault. Do as I say. And you, mister. The name's Dillon. I'm the U.S. Marshal out of Dodge. Your brother asked me to come out and help. Don't need no help. Shut up, Ham. Nothing to help with. Danny, you heard. Put the horse away and get in the house. You ain't giving me no licking. Put up your gun. I'm coming over to talk. Come on, Chester. It's against the law to shoot a man in cold blood. You know that? Shucks, I wasn't aiming at you. I was aiming at a rabbit up on the rise there. Your horse is scattered away. Mm-hmm. Well, now, what about your paw? What about him? Have you found him? Shucks, he don't need to be fired. He'll come back when he's good and ready. Pa's off hunting. That's not what your brother says. He's... Where'd he go? Well, he's going to get himself a lick, and that's what, and he knows it. Crap himself away, that's what. Donald, that's your name, isn't it? Yeah. Well, look, I'm not one to interfere in family matters, but if you do need help, I mean, if your pa's shooting up cattle like Danny says... Well, maybe he'll be practicing next on people, and that wouldn't be so good. That brother of ours, he's a dirty little liar. No, he's not, Donald. I'm glad you came, Marshal. You come into the house, please? Chester and I followed the girl into the house. I knew it was the sister, Lily... All the family I'd seen up to then had had a great likeness to each other. Donald slouched in behind us and moved around the room nervous-like. It wasn't by rights a house. It was too big for a cabin. I had the feeling that they'd put up boards and studs where the fancy took them and the place just grew another room like a lizard's new tail. I don't know what it was, but I got a funny feeling... It was too hot. And something was wrong. All wrong. And the girl Lily looked square at me with hard eyes. Donald! Huh? Sit down. Make me nervous. Oh, sure. Marshal Dillon... I want you to help us find Paul. Oh, Lily, Dave's going to be awful mad. Somebody's got to do something around here. Did, uh, 
Did your pa take a horse? No. Oh, where do you think he went, Miss Lily? I don't know. Maybe up to Horse Flats. Maybe over by Gorman's Creek. Creek's all dried up. There's got to be no water in there. Did he take a water skin with him? Uh-uh. No, he, he didn't. Kind of bad, wandering around without no water. When did he leave? Yesterday morning. Heard a couple of shots along about noon. Dave found a calf laying dead over in the North Range. Uh, you can see it there through the window. Haven't had time to bring it in yet. Was, um... Was he drunk? Well, sure. Drunk as you can get. Weren't he, Lily? I'm... I'm a feared for him, Marshal Dillon. Yeah, I understand. Well, it makes good sense you sent for me. Well, I'll, uh... I'll try and find him and bring him back. Well, I ain't gonna do no such thing. You had Marshal fella out of Dodge? This is Marshal Dillon, Dave. My brother, Dave Birch. How are you? I told you, Lily. Told you keep our business to us, not outside. It's got to be somebody else's business the way it is, Dave. And you know it. No such thing, Lily. I, I told her, Dave. I told her. I, I knew he was going to be mad. I, uh... I figure the four of us, you and your brother here and... Chester and me ought to be able to get him in before night. Now, mister, I told you we don't need you. Or no one else. I'll be obliged you get off this property. Hey. Shut up, Lily. Yeah, I'll see you and your fellow there to the door, Marshal. Uh, I'm sorry, but... Uh, if your paw's running around dangerous, it's my duty to find him. Donald. I got him. Get up slow, Marshal. And you, fella, reach up high. Okay, Dave. Take the guns. The younger brother, Donald, had got behind my chair and now he was covering us with a shotgun. Dave took our guns. It was kind of crazy, and I almost wanted to laugh when I saw the kid, Danny, peeking in around the door. But then I saw his eyes, and there was the same thing in them. Hard, angry, as in the others. The girl started to say something. Then she shut up. Now get on your horses and ride back. Now I don't want you out here again. Ain't no matter for the law, and you're trusting. You're making it a matter for the law right now. You know that. Start walking. Them guns is U.S. property. Okay. I ain't no thief. Here, bullets. I'm keeping. Figure they're worth about two bits. Donald, give them two bits. Sure. Here. All right, now, here's your guns. Now, get out fast. If you come snooping back again, me and my brother's going to be shooting at you. Turn for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, 
For centuries, arthritis and rheumatism have plagued mankind. And it's only in the last few years that science has begun to find hopeful avenues to explore toward relief and cure. The Arthritis and Rheumatism Foundation, established in 1948, holds a yearly drive to obtain funds for yet more concentrated research. A contribution to this year's drive, sent simply, Arthritis, in care of your local postmaster, will help this fine work to continue for the eventual benefit of everyone. And now for the second act of Gunsmoke. Two brothers followed us out and over to the horses. As hot as it was in the house, it was worse in the open. The saddles were burning. There wasn't another word passed between the Birch boys and me. They just stood covering us. And when I looked back a hundred yards or more off, they were still there. Well, sir, that's what comes of trying to do a kindness, Mr. Dillon. As far as I'm concerned, they deserve whatever happens. Oh, I can't make it out, Chester. You'd think from the way they talk, they don't care what happens to their paw. Mean bunch of children. They probably don't. My, Mr. Dillon, you ain't even riled they pulled guns on us. I guess I'm not, Chester. You know, there's something awful wrong back there. Those boys don't look the kind to pull a gun. The girl wanted to talk, all right, but they wouldn't let her. Just mean, that's all. Oh, oh. you aim to go back, Mr. Dillon? It's like I said, Chester, if it's just a family affair, you and me don't belong in it. But if the old man's as drunk as he sounds, he could make a lot of trouble. No, we're not going back right now. We're going to have a look around this country for a spell. <laughs> Chester and me covered a lot of ground that morning and into the afternoon. I had an idea that we might find Birch wherever we could find water. Without a horse, he couldn't get too far, and without water, he was going to get sick pretty quick. We rode over by Gorman's Creek and then up to Horse Flats, and there was nothing. Along about two in the afternoon, Chester spotted a carcass lying off the trail was a cow. She'd been shot three times in the head. Could have happened this morning or yesterday. Uh-huh. Hard to tell in this weather. Oh. Well, the ground's too dry to pick up a track. Might as well take a chance and go over to the hills. Yeah, might be water there. Boy, I could do with some right this very minute. I got a funny taste in my mouth looking at that dead cow. When a thing dies natural or gets killed for food, that's one thing, but even an animal has a look about it when it's been murdered. We rode the half a dozen miles to the hills. 
They weren't rightly hills, maybe more like humps rising up from the brown, dry earth. And we could get a good view across the plain. There was a patch or two of wild oats up there, long turned to rust and foxtails. Maybe it was in our minds, but just those few feet higher made us seem closer to the sun and hotter. be able to see if he's out there anywhere. Mr. Dillon, he'd be dead if he was. Man couldn't live a morning out there on foot. Well, I don't think he's going to find water up here. Now, look at that. Dry as a bone. You see something, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, tracks, I think. Yeah, he's been up here. I went down again, though. Over there. He sure made a long way on foot. Must be more than eight miles from his place. Yeah. Yeah, I saw. Blew his head clean off. I was afraid you was going to step on him. Well, we'll follow the trucks until they give out. Come on. Those trucks kept going in and around the hills. In a couple of places we saw where they'd stopped by a dry water hole and went on. And as the hill sloped down to the plain again, we lost them. But the direction seemed to be headed back to the birch place. That's the way we rode. We hadn't gone more than 15 minutes along when... We saw the body of a man and a horse some few feet away. They were both dead. Sure, didn't he, Mr. Dillon? Birch must have emptied his gun. Look at that. Isn't it Jack Mason, one of old man Gorman's hands? Yes, sir. That's who it is, right enough. Nice fellow, too. I knew him a bit. Get him on your horse, will you, Chester, and take him over to Mr. Gorman? Yes, sir, I'll do that. I'm going to go back to the Birch place. I... I'd rather come with you, Mr. Dillon. No, meet me there, huh? Yes, sir. And if you see Birch on the way, watch your step. Try not to kill him. But don't take any chances. No, sir, I surely won't. There was killing now, and I wasn't in the mood to talk gentle and kind with the sons and girl at the house. It was the boy, Danny, that saw me first. He was sitting on the doorstep. He ran inside. And a second later, I saw Dave come out with a shotgun. I didn't give him a chance to make up his mind. Dave! Dave! What did you shoot my brother for? Shut up, kid. Get inside. Your arm's 
Get inside now, you hear me? I'm sorry, but I'm not arguing with you anymore. Where's your paw? I don't know. He killed a man back on the plane away. You're a liar. I told you to get in the house, kid. Now get... I'm staying. He's a liar. Paul never killed nobody. Where's Donald and your sister? Outlook. Mr. Diddy. They killed someone. Yeah. Jack Mason, one of Gorman's boys. Don't you say that. Don't you say... Danny, give me some whiskey, will you? My arm pains. Yeah. Yeah, I will. But you ain't gonna tell no lies about my fault. You tell the quit, Dave. Where do you think he is? Donald Hurst shot up horse flats when they'd gone up there. And he must have doubled back from the hills. Listen, you tell the boy to ride into town and fetch the doc out here. He'll take care of that arm. Okay. When my deputy rides in, Chester Proudfoot, tell him where I've gone, will you? Sure. Marshal. Yeah. Marshal, you gonna... You gonna kill our... our Paul? I don't want to. Not if I can help it. Over at Horse Flats, I caught up with Donald and Lily Birch. I told him about the killing. And a half mile further on, the three of us saw the old man. He was crouched down on his haunches by a parched water hole. Stripped naked. He was crying. It was a bad sound. And when I saw his eyes, I knew he wasn't drunk. There was no sign of his guns or his clothes. Come on, Paul. It's okay. It's done. You're, you're okay, Pop. Come on, Jim. Come on, Pop. Please. I knew it would happen like this. Someday. I knew it would. Boys figured it'd be shame on us all. Word got out, Pa had spells. Your brothers were wrong. Pop, please, will you? Pop. Come on. It was all right till after Ma died. And he started to act this way. That's why we had to leave our last place. People found out. Try to keep him home, but it weren't no good. Give your old boy a cup of water. And your pa's this now. Get up, we're going to bed. funny. Pa never took a drink in his life. We always said he was drunk when he carried on like this. People could figure a man drunk. I'm sorry, Miss Lily, but I'm going to have to take him in. I got to. Well, they do, too. I don't know. But he's done murder. It's my job to take him in. They'll hang him. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. Son, son, where, where's your brother? He didn't want to let you come out here alone. Huh? You're too young now. Where's your mom? She ought to know better now. Miss Lily, come over here. Oh, oh no, sir. I want you to listen to me. It's not my business, but will you let me give you some advice? Miss Lily. Huh? 
Now you sell this place. I'll see what I can do to help. And you and your brothers go somewhere else and start afresh. You can get a good price for your land. You do that. It's best. Yeah. We'll go. I'm not saying you've got to. I'm saying it'd be better. It'd be better for the kid. He's seen too much of this. It's not good. You gotta teach him to... to smile again. Act like a kid again. You understand? You understand? Sure. I understand. Okay. I'll be taking him along now. We'll stop off at your place with some clothes. All right. We took the old man back to his place Got him dressed His children said goodbye to him like They knew that they'd never see him again Like there was no hope Chester rode in and the old man seemed real happy to Go back with us to Dodge He didn't know He didn't care on the way, we passed the Doc and Danny riding out to take care of Dave's arm. It's a funny thing, the old man didn't even see the kid. He was prattling to us about the Indian Wars. The last I saw Danny Birchie, he was looking back over his shoulder at his paw. And we heard him still crying a long way off. Under the direction of Norman MacDonald stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Richard Beals as Danny and Michael Ann Barrett as Lily, with Lee Millar, John Boehner, and Lawrence Dobkin. Parley Bear is Chester. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. You never really know about families. Maybe that's why they called that episode of Gunsmoke, I Don't Know. It aired in the late fall of 1952, and it came to you from the big broadcast and WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or on Twitter at WAMU885. And don't forget to visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. 
On Dragnet tonight, two police departments are involved. On this ruby anniversary of The Wizard of Oz, it's appropriate that they're after some jewel thieves. The episode's called The Big Scrapbook, and it comes from April 26, 1953, NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. You get a call from the San Diego Police Department that three holdup men are thought to be heading for your city. You know they're armed. You know they're dangerous. Your job? Get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, October 5th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Didion. My name's Friday. I was on my way into the office, and it was 4.58 p.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery. Hi, Murph. Seen Frank? Yeah, he was here a couple of minutes ago. I think he went down the hall. Said he'd be right back. Thanks. How are the kids? Yeah, we're in the cycle again. What do you mean? Yeah, the cold cycle. Oh, yeah. Oldest boy brings one home with him, gives it to his sister. Then it goes to the baby, then to the wife, and then to me. By the time I got it, the oldest boy's ready to catch it again from me. Doesn't seem to be any end to it. Yeah, I see what you mean. Reading the other day where if you take care of a cold, you know, take a lot of pills, stay in bed, you can shake it in a week. All right. Don't do anything special for it, and it'll take seven days to get rid of it. Joe? Hi. Uh, got an APB here from San Diego. Boys down there really drew themselves a gem. Yeah, can I take a look? Yeah, here he is. Yeah. I can hear him moan all the way from here. What is it? Well, I had a jewel robbery at a hotel on the coast. Three men took 135000 in jewels and at least 15000 in cash. 150000 huh? Any leads on them? No, APB gives a description, list of the stolen jewelry. That's about all. When did it happen? It says 1.30 this morning. Yeah, it's going to keep him busy for a while. That Mort screaming like an eagle, Joe. Why? Well, I talked to him last week, said he was going down to Mexico to do some fishing. Been saving days off for the last three months. Won't get to go now. Yeah, I get it. Robbie, Friday. Yeah, go ahead. San Diego. Huh? Yeah, hi, Mort. Yeah, we got the APB. How's it going? Yeah. Uh-huh. When do you figure they left? Yeah. Okay, Mort. Yeah. All right, we'll keep an eye open. Right. Bye. What's he got? Well, Davis, Walk, and Hewen are coming up. They're driving? Yeah, they figure the hold-up men are heading this way. The early editions of the afternoon papers came out and they carried the complete story. Three men had entered the Carlton Surf Hotel at 1.30 a.m. All three were armed and they forced the manager to open the safe. Inside the vault were the jewels and the other valuables that had been deposited with the management for safekeeping by the guests. After looting the safe, the three men had robbed five of the guests who had entered the lobby during the time that they'd been going through the safe. After taking all the money and valuables they could find, the three men forced the manager and the guests into a back storeroom of the hotel and they locked them in. None of the victims could tell the San Diego officers what kind of a car had been used, but all of them were able to give good descriptions of the three men. 
The San Diego Police Department had been called, and the men from the Detective Bureau had begun an immediate investigation. From the phone conversation I'd had with Lieutenant Mort Gear, they had evidence to believe that the three men were heading up for Los Angeles. While the three detectives from the San Diego Department came to L.A., Lieutenant Gear, Sergeant Tony McGuire would continue the investigation down in their city. 11.12 p.m. Sergeants Carl Davis, Jerry Walk, and Pappy Hewan arrived at the city hall. They filled us in on what had happened. The way the thing looked, it figured that someone who had either worked for the hotel or was working for it had engineered it. Ah, that check on. The identification we got? Yeah. Virgil Russell worked for the hotel a year ago as a busboy in a dining room. All the victims gave a positive identification on it. How about the other two, Carl? Nothing on him, yeah. What made you figure they might be coming up here? Well, Russell's got a record, checked his package, and found that he has a sister in San Diego. Checked her, and she gave us a lead. Yeah. Said her brother and two men came by the house early this morning. Her brother's been staying with her the past few weeks. Anyway, he came by this morning, packed his clothes, said he had to come up to L.A. on business. Was she having a dress up here for him, Carl? Not good. Said he told her he'd get in touch with her. He was staying with a friend in place out on Olympic Boulevard. Anything on that address? Yeah, a package gave an address out there. Russell had listed a friend of his when he was arrested. We figured he might be out there. Got a good description of the car. One thing is going to help. Yeah. Sister told us that she asked her brother about the other two men. Wanted to know if they didn't want to come to the house. Mm-hmm. Russell said no, they were waiting for him. If the three of them were in a hurry, she couldn't give us a description of the other two. On well, what time this happened? About 5.30 this morning. All right. Well, they came right up here. They'd get in about 8 then, wouldn't they? Yeah. You're pretty sure that these are the right ones now? Looks like that. Identification of the mugs. Russell's sister told us when he was packing, a brooch fell out of his grip. She picked it up for him. You have a description of it? Yeah, matches one that was taken from the hotel in the theft. Large diamond with four rubies in the setting. Looked real good for the job. You got a broadcast out on the car? Yeah, Russell's sister told us it's a 53 Nash red and black continental hookup. She said Russell just got back from a trip through Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico. Said that he had the rear window covered with those stickers. You know, the ones they get from the gas stations. Yeah, I know what you mean. Window's supposed to be covered with them. Shouldn't be hard to spot. Well, maybe he figures that too. Might have him taken off, huh? Possible. It's a lead, though. Something else to look out for. Any chance he might have gotten across the border into Mexico? Yeah, it's possible, but it isn't likely. As soon as we got word on the car, we got out a supplemental APB on it and got in touch with the authorities down the border. They said they hadn't seen a car that matched the description across the border. Well, if they'd gotten to the border, the officers down there would know about it anyway. Yeah, I talked to Al Gaten from our office. He said they'd be on the lookout for him. Our pawn shop detail got right on it, Carl. They got the description of the jewelry out all over town. We haven't had any reports on it yet, though. They aren't going to try to sell it piece by piece. Too many of those pieces are easy to recognize. Yeah. They'll probably try to pedal through a fence and have it broken up. Well, we'll get the word out to our informants. Ask them to watch out for it. Yeah. Heist that big can't be kept quiet for long. Bound to be rumbles on it someplace. I'd like to check out the place on Olympic. It looks like it's the best lead we got. Okay. Where are Walking Hill, you know? Went down the hall with Murphy. Wanted to check some things at R&I. Well, might as well get on out to Olympic, huh? You got the address? Yeah, you better check the place first. Could be rough. What do you mean? Well, all three of them are armed. Russell served time twice before at the joint. Yeah. I don't think he's going to want to go back. We checked the name of Russell's friend through our files. We found that he had no record. We drove out to the address on Olympic and we talked with the neighbors. From them, we found out that it was not a private residence. We talked to the woman who lived next door. We asked her about the man listed in the San Diego package as a friend of the suspects. She told us she hadn't seen him. Directly in front of the rooming house, we found a car answering the description given us by the sister. There were no lights on in the rooming house. Walk and Hewan covered the rear of the place. Frank, Carl Davis, and I went up to the front door. Pretty dark. I can't see anybody in there. Can you? No, I can't. Check the window. See if I can spot anything. All right, Carl. Now let's try the door. Yeah.
is it? Come on, open up. Beat it. Nobody gets in here. All right, Frank, let's hit it. All right, stand right where you are. Hold on. I'm not doing anything. What are you doing? Breaking in get here. Get your hands like out. That's funny. Sure. I'll shake him, Joe. He's clean. Everything okay? Yeah, Carl. I'll get walking you and Who else is in the house? Nobody but the landlady. She's upstairs. Her and her daughter. Nobody else here. What's your name? Pete Ellis. Where's Russell? I don't know any Russell. All right, we'll look around. Come on. What's in there? Dining room. There ain't nothing in Open there. Open it up. See? Nobody here. No. All right, we'll check the other rooms. Where's this door go? Bedroom. Ain't nobody in there. Open it up. Joe, nobody in the kitchen. Check the back porch. Walk and Davis are upstairs. All right, we'll try this one here. Come on, you open it up. It's locked. It can't get in. There's a key in the door over here. Let's see if it fits. Virgil! Virgil! Get out! Virgil, it's the cops! Get out! All right, get out of the way, you. Come on, let's hit it. Get out! On the bed, Joe. I see. All right, come on, you out of that bed. Hey, Joe? Yeah? The bottle of sleeping pills on the table here. Yeah, an empty bottle of whiskey. I guess he's dead drunk. Upstairs is clean, Joe. Russell, huh? Yeah, he's drunk. I guess we're pretty lucky. Under his pillow there? Yeah. Three guns. With the suspects in custody, we searched the house. In the back bedroom where we'd found Virgil Russell, we found a folder with all of the newspaper stories of the hotel robbery. In each instance, that portion of the story which referred to the thieves themselves was outlined in pencil, and there were small notations along the margins of the newspaper. A complete search of the house netted us nothing. There was no sign of the loot from the robbery, although each of the suspects had a large amount of money in their possession. We talked to the landlady, but she was unable to tell us anything about the suspects. She said that she had rented a room to Peter Ellis over a year before, and that the suspect had moved out after living in the house for only two months. She said that she hadn't seen them again since that night when they arrived at the house and asked for rooms. We called the office and arranged for a stakeout on the place, and we took the two suspects back to the office. We ran Peter Ellis through R&I, and we found that he had one previous conviction on a robbery charge. 2.15 a.m., we talked to Virgil Russell in the interrogation room. All right, all right, I ain't trying to con you into anything. I was in on the heist, I'll admit it, but I ain't gonna be no fink. Ain't gonna get any other names out of me. You got the money we found on you from that hotel robbery, is that right? I don't know where else it'd come from. I got no reason to con you about the hotel job. I pulled it. I ain't afraid to admit it. I'm just not turning fink, that's all. Maybe we can get it out of Ellis. He won't tell you anything. You're pretty sure about that. He admits he was in on the robbery. Well, so what? We all had a deal. If any of us got caught, they wouldn't tell about the others. You think Ellis and that other guy would go that route, standing the arrest alone? Sure. We had an agreement. Oh, come on now. Tell us how much you got for the jewels. You can tell us that and not tell us who the other man is, can't you? Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Isn't any way you could tell if I told you how much we got? How much? Seven thousand. How much? Seven thousand. Who set up the deal to sell the stuff? Your partner? Yeah, he handled all that. He fixed it for you to get seven thousand bucks for all the jewelry? Yeah, that's right. Well, you made a good deal, all right. Seven thousand for a hundred and thirty five thousand dollars worth of jewelry. <laughs> Wasn't worth a hundred and thirty five. That's just the papers making it sound big. No, no, Russell, you're wrong. That's what the stuff is worth. Are you kidding? You got that report, Frank. Yeah, yeah. Now, wait a minute. That's, that's maybe what they claim the stuff is worth. But you know how people are always jacking things up on the insurance companies? The stuff was worth uh, maybe 15000 not a cent more. Yeah, Joe, here it is. Mm. This report you got from the insurance company, Carl. That's it. Would you like to read it yourself, Russell, or do you want me to read it to you? Oh, let me see it. Uh-huh. What a lousy bummer. 
Oh, no good. He's a thief, that's what he is. A, a thieving thief. That's the kind of a guy you say you had to deal with, huh? But you think he was doing you a big favor. Some deal, $7,000. If we'd picked him up, he'd have screamed like an eagle. He's your pal, all right. We're a no good thief. I can't believe it. Who'd he sell the stuff to, do you know? No, no, I don't, and that's the truth. I, I saw the guy, but I don't know who it was. How'd the deal work? Well, earlier tonight, we got together out in Westwood. He called the fellow who was going to handle the deal, told him to meet us here. Who's he? A Fink, a lousy Fink. What's his name? Payne, Al Payne. I spell it. Last name. Um, P-A-Y-N-E. You got a record? No, I don't think so. I never heard him talk about it. You give us a description? Yeah. That stuff was really worth 135 grand. He said it was a lot of talk, newspaper talk, he said. Oh, brother, what a laugh. What's his pain look like? Oh, he's about 37, maybe 150, 60 pounds. Oh, a little bit of hair on the edge of his head. I'll check the name through R&I, Joe. Right. You want to bring the mugs back here? Yeah. Russell? Yeah? That first name, is it Alfred or Albert? I think it's Albert. He's some kind of a promoter. I don't know what he promotes. I think it's just a dodge, kind of a front. I'll be right back, Joe. All right. Let's go ahead with the story about the buy, huh? All right. Where was I? You said you went out to Westwood. Oh, yeah. Well, we were supposed to meet out in the parking lot by the ice rink. Big place out there. Well, we met this guy, the fellow Payne called. He looked at the stuff, said it was worth maybe 15000 the way it was. But he said it had to be broken down before it could be sold. And it wouldn't bring that much when it was all broken down. What did Al say to that? Well, he agreed to it, said it was true. He went right along with it. Lousy deal. He was probably in on the whole thing. Wouldn't be surprised. I just can't get over it. We had all that stuff and didn't know what it was worth. You got any idea who this guy is? No, I, I told you. I didn't know. You said this Payne had an office here in town. You know where it is? Yeah, I can show you. We were up there this afternoon while I was setting up the deal. It's in a building over on uh, on 6th. You'd be willing to go over there with us? So you can nail him? That's right. We want to get the jewels back. Sure, I'll go. So what that bum did to me, nothing too bad for him. How are you going to work it, Joe? Well, Russell here will have to introduce me as somebody who wants to buy this stuff. He'll have to tell Payne that I'm willing to pay, say, 50000 for the jewelry. That way, Payne will have to get in touch with the other man. I don't think he'll pass up a deal like that. Maybe he figures to make more than that this one. Yeah, but suppose he thinks that Russell here wants to do business with me. He'll get the stuff back. I don't think he'll want to cross Russell. Might work. Oh, we haven't got much choice. we got to get the stuff back before it's broken up. Hey, Joe, i got some pictures here. I'm going to match the description. What was that? I'm going to match the description. Oh. You want to look at these? Yeah. Joe's going to go see this Payne with Russell and Ellis, try to get a lead on where the stuff is. How are you going to work it? Well, I'll tell Payne I'm interested in buying the jewels, offer him maybe 50000 Picture's not here. None of these is Payne. You go along with this plan, Russell? Sure. I'd like to see you get him and get him good. It's pretty risky. It doesn't look like there's any other way. Suppose not. Russell? Yeah? We know Payne carries a gun. I'm going to tell you something. I want you to remember it. All right. You get any bright ideas about tipping Payne off about Joe? Remember, we'll have men all through the building. All right. We're not going to start any shooting. Yeah. But we'll finish it. Two suspects, Peter Ellis and Virgil Russell, were taken to the main jail and booked in for violation of Section 211 of the California Penal Code. After that, the officers from San Diego, Frank and I, discussed the plan for finding the stolen jewels. It was agreed that I would go into the office building with the suspect, Virgil Russell. To lessen the chances of discovery, I would carry no gun or any police identification. 
We were unable to make contact that night, so the following morning, we checked over the physical layout of the building. It was six stories high and had one elevator. There were two entrances to the building, one in the front and one that opened off an alley in the rear. Officers were planted at both entrances. Additional men were stationed on each floor. Two men were on the roof to cut off any possible escape to one of the adjoining buildings. 11.30 a.m. Tuesday, October 6th, Russell called Payne and said that he wanted to see him. Payne told him to come right over to the office. Russell and I got into a car and we drove over. It had been arranged that from the time we entered the building, no one would be permitted to leave until we returned to the main entrance. 11.58 a.m. We got to the office building. We went up to the fourth floor. The sign on Payne's door read, Albert Payne Investments. Russell opened the door and we walked in. Hi, Verge. What's the bit? Al, like you to meet Joe Ferguson. Joe, glad to meet you. Yeah, same here, Al. Well, sit down, boys. Now, what's this all about? It's about the stuff, Al. We gotta get it back. Now, what's the pitch? I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, come off it, Payne. Joe here's willing to up the ante for the jewels. How much? I'll go as high as 50,000. I gotta see it first. For 15,000 worth of jewels? Papers say it's worth 135. I explained that to you. They upped the value. It's all insured. People up the price of the insurance companies. Papers up the price to sell more papers. I told you. Yeah, and I ain't buying it. I want the stuff back. I never even got my cut of the 7000 Ellis feels the same way. I told you the money'd be coming. Oh, it ain't coming anymore. I want the stuff back. I don't think we can do that. Most of it's already broken up. No, not much of it could be broken up in the time that he's had it. guy that bought it isn't going to like it. Well, that's tough. You just tell him to stop breaking it up. Tell him we want it back. Uh, where do you figure to sell the jewels? I don't see where that concerns you. I'm offering you 50000 for them. That's all you need to know. Come on, now. Come on. Quit playing games. Let's get on it. You get in touch with the guy you gave him to and get the jewels back. Anyway, I got something to say about this. I was in on the job with you. Don't you forget it. I'm only going to say this once more, Payne. You get on that phone and get in touch with your contact. Tell him to stop breaking them up. You set up a meet to get the stuff back. Uh, I'll call him. I don't think it's going to do any good. He's probably got all the mountings melted down by this time. Got it all broken up. You call him. Let's see what happens. All right. Now, let me talk to Fred. Fred and Sal. Yeah. Uh, listen, something's come up. We can't go through with the deal. What? Yeah, I know. I told him. Doesn't make any difference. They want it all back. Yeah, I told him that, too. Doesn't make any difference. Uh, you want the jewels back that have been broken down, too? I told you, Al. I want all of it back. Yeah. Yeah, Freddy says all of it. Okay. And when can you make it? Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll see you then, right. Okay, bye. I'll have the stuff for you tomorrow night. Why does he have to wait that long? How do I know? He just said he couldn't get it to you any sooner. Well, you should have let me talk to him. I'd have told him. Yeah, sure. How much of it's been broken up? Well, hardly any. Just got started. Fred says it's almost all whole. Who is this Fred? That's none of your business. I asked you a question, Al. You got your answer. Doesn't make any difference who he is. You and your friends lost up the deal. Be happy. You fixed it fine. Well, I'll come out better. Yeah, you better be right. Now, remember, I got a piece of this. I won't forget. What time tomorrow are we going to meet Fred? He said he'd call. Let me know where and when. Well, I can't be any later than tomorrow. I got to be leaving then. You're going to have the money with you when you pick up the stuff, I'll have it. All of it. I don't want any of this down payment. I told you I'd have it. All right, you call me tomorrow about 10, Verge. I'll let you know the details then. Okay. I hope you're right about this, Verge. What do you mean? Well, this deal, I don't like it. I hope nothing happens to louse it up. Yeah, so do I.
Virgil Russell and I left the office and went downstairs. We checked with Frank, Carl Davis, and the other officers from San Diego. Al Payne was taken into custody and booked in at the main jail on suspicion of violation of Section 211 PC. Then we returned to the office. You find out who has the stuff? Yeah, a fellow named Fred. You know who he is? No, not yet, but we will. How'd you figure that? Payne didn't tell you. Well, I saw the number he dialed when he called Fred. It was a Hollywood prefix. That narrows down the area. I can try the number and see who answers. Oh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong number. Excuse me. Did you get it? Yeah. It's the Kingery Trophy Company. You want to check the book? Right. Okay. K-A-I. King Kincaid. Here it is, Joe. Kingery Trophy Company. It's on Las Palmas. Trophy Company. That'd give him a chance to melt the mountings down to metal, wouldn't it? Be easier to get rid of it that way. Makes sense. What do you figure to move in on? Right now. We can drive out and check the place now. Look it over, then we'll go and get them. Uh, what happens with me? we got to take you back to main jail. After the help I gave That's you? the way it's got to be. You knew that going in. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, you tell the DA I helped, though, huh? Yeah, we'll see. He knows about it. Sure, a bad deal all the way around. Real bad deal. I should have known I couldn't win. Right from the start, I should have known. Nobody can win. Well, still a lot of people trying. We returned Virgil Russell to his cell, and then we drove out to the Kingery Trophy Company. It was a two-story building on Las Palmas Avenue in Hollywood. They made trophies and fraternity pins. A large sign on the front of the building advertised that they could duplicate anything in metal. We checked with the neighborhood merchants and found that there was a permanent staff of four employees. The company was owned by a Roger Kingery, and none of the neighborhood people could tell us anything about an employee by the name of Fred. 5 p.m. The employees of the plant left the building. One man remained. From the description we'd gotten from Russell, we figured that he was the person Payne had called Fred. 6.03 p.m. The lights in the rear of the factory went on, and through the windows we could see the suspect working over a small furnace. On a table off to one side, we could see a quantity of jewelry. Frank, Carl, and I went to the side door of the plant while the other officers covered the remaining doors. All right, you ready? Yeah, let's go. Carl? Yeah. I'll hit the door and grab him before he's got the chance to throw the jewelry into the furnace. Right. Didn't he call you this afternoon and tell you to stop breaking it up? Yeah, and then he called back and told me not to pay attention to what he said. Go ahead with the job. I did like he said. Who else is in this with you? What do you mean? Who else here at the factory? Nobody. I'm the only one. I only did it because I needed the money. I didn't know where the jewels came from. I didn't care. It didn't make no difference to me. As long as I got mine, I was happy. I didn't know what it was all about. Looks like most of it's here, Joe. How many pieces did you break down? Took a couple of the pins apart. Didn't have the time to melt any of the mounting down. It's all there. All the pain gave me. What's your name? Fred Michelson. All right. Let's go. I didn't know they were stolen. I didn't know anything about it. I just did a job. That's all. Just a job. Yeah. I didn't even get paid for it. Don't worry about it. You will. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On February 18th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of San Diego. In a moment, the results of that trial.
Virgil Nathan Russell, Peter Howard Ellis, and Albert Franklin Payne were tried and convicted of robbery in the first degree. They received sentence as prescribed by law. Fred George Michelson was tried and found guilty of receiving stolen property. He received sentence as prescribed by law. Receiving stolen property is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not more than ten years. Ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Jack Allen, Los Angeles Police Department. Thank you. On behalf of the Detroit Police Officers Association, I'd like to present this award to Dragnet. I wonder if you'd read it, Mr. Fenneman. Yes, sir. Whereas the radio and television show Dragnet and its writers, producers, and actors most accurately portray the American police officers and their work, and whereas the result of this portrayal has been to give the people of this country a new insight into their police departments, bringing with it understanding, sympathy, and an aroused public opinion, and whereas Dragnet brings credit to the men and women of the police forces throughout America, therefore we, the Detroit Police Officers Association, representing the patrolmen, detectives, and policewomen of Detroit, hereby cite and commend the show Dragnet, and its star Jack Webb, who plays the part of Detective Sergeant Friday, as the finest and most accurate police program, both on television and radio. Signed this date, March 31st, 1953, in behalf of the association by Thomas Duffy, President, Bruce Finney, Vice President, Francis Klein, Secretary-Treasurer. All of us on Dragnet want to thank the Detroit Police Officers Association and our thanks to you, Lieutenant Allen. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Eddie Firestone, Art Gilmore. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Dragnet, the big scrapbook from the spring of 1953. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. Since we're celebrating the 80th anniversary of one of the greatest musicals of all time, the movie The Wizard of Oz, a kind of radio version of which we'll hear an hour from now, I thought we'd use our usual detective fiction slot for that most musical of private eyes, Richard Diamond, played by a guy who was himself a song and dance man, Dick Powell. And the episode sometimes called the $50,000 Diamond Heist. Here it is from November 12th, 1949, NBC and the series Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Diamond Detective Agency, a corpse to fit every pocketbook. Rick? Oh, hello, Helen, baby. Uh, let me sit down. Oh. Rick? 
Jake, what's the matter? <sighs> you sounded like your arch is just broke. You got the right idea, baby. Oh, but your geography is cockeyed. Are you really hurt, Rick? Oh, believe it or not, I was trampled by a herd of horses. Oh, Rick, you idiot. Now, tell me what did happen. Okay, one horse. You ruined me for life. You went horseback riding? Oh, I don't believe it. Yeah, I want to see my bull legs. You actually did. Uh-oh. Took a girl to get you to ride a horse. But it was some slinky blonde. No, baby, it was a Palomino. And look, let's get off horses. I- I've had enough to last me. What's with the early call? Early? Rick, did you just get in? It's after 11. I was dreaming of you, baby. You wouldn't have wanted me to stop just to get into the office? It's probably a whole harem. Uh, Helen, you got to stop that peeking. You read the morning papers? They come out in the morning? Now, you stop that. Did you read them? Well, didn't have a bet down. Why? You on the society page again? Oh, uh-huh. much more exciting than that. The police commissioner's house was robbed of $50,000 worth of diamonds last night, and his gardener was murdered. What? I thought that would fetch you. Better get a paper. The commissioner's statement's written in blood. Yeah. And if things don't wind up fast, tomorrow's statement will be in Walt Levinson's blood. It'll be his case. Now, you stay out of it, Rick. This thief cuts throats. Ah, uh, I'm scared. Are you, Rick? Well, I'll come over tonight and I'll frighten you at close range. Say eight. I'll practice my knee knocking so I'll be in good form. And stay in. No nightclubs. At the sound of the castanets, Francis can open the door. It'll be me and my knees. See you tonight, baby. Bye. Is this the Diamond Detective Agency? Just like it says on the door. Come in and close it gently. My Japanese beetle's still asleep. Asleep? He's got a better union. Sit down, Mr... Uh, Burton, Phineas Burton. Uh, what can I do for you, Mr. Burton? Well, I want to hire you if it's agreeable. Well, for a hundred a day in expenses, I'm pretty agreeable. Well, that's fine. I have a package I want you to deliver to a party in Philadelphia. Hmm. You can get a messenger for five bucks, or if you're hard up, a carrier pigeon for a handful of popcorn. Why a detective? Well, I'm perfectly capable of judging for myself what I need, Mr. Diamond. Now, here's $300. There will be 200 more for you after you make safe delivery of the package. Why? Why? Three-letter word meaning why you want to pay me for five days when the trip to Philly and back can be done in a few hours. Oh, Mr. Diamond, I simply want you to drop everything else and take this job immediately. And that is my reason for the added payment. Oh, all right. I'll take your money. Just as soon as you tell me what's in the package, who it goes to, and why it's so important that I take it personally. Uh, well, I can't tell you that. Okay, it's your problem. Now, where did I leave my soap chips? Uh, do you have to know? Of course. How can I do any washing without soap? I mean about this package. Oh, no, no. I can recommend another agency who will do it for 25 bucks and no questions. Oh, very well. Uh, Mr. Elliot will meet you at the Philadelphia Station Information Desk at 2 o'clock today. I will wire him your description and he will make the contact. As for the package, it contains some very valuable papers, which Mr. Elliot is afraid his wife will try to intercept. I see. Uh, He commissioned me to find the best man I could to bring the package to him. Oh, You must have read my ad. You'll have to leave immediately. Mr. Elliot is very anxious to get the package. You call me at the Astor when you return, and I'll send over the rest of the money. Uh, Good day. It may be at that. What? Forget it. Burton left the package on my desk with the money. He was a thin guy, had a funny pot that made him look as if he'd swallowed a basketball. He pushed it out the door and waddled after it. When a guy insists on throwing money in my lap, I get suspicious. And when I remembered the robbery of the night before, I got that lousy feeling again. Now, paragraph 4, section B, rule A of the detective's code of ethics says, quote, Upon receiving money to deliver package, detective must never open same. It is unethical. Yeah, who's ethical? 
surprise. No wonder basketball had been nervous. At the bottom of the box were five pretty little diamonds. About ten grand worth of a guess. Of course, it may have been that Burton thought diamonds should belong to diamond, but my bet was on a frame-up. A frame that cost the real heisters ten grand out of fifty. But was aimed to get him a nice picture to fit the frame. Me. Yeah? Is this Mr. Diamond? Oh, hello, Burton. Something on your mind? Oh, I happened to be in the store across the street, and I noticed you hadn't left yet. Uh, you will leave right away, won't you? Just as soon as I arrange things, Phineas. Well, remember, it takes an hour and a half to get to Philadelphia. I, I don't want you to be late. I'll bet you don't. Well, it was just to make sure uh, you understand. Oh, yes, 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 I understand. You can dribble your basketball home now. I beg your pardon. Skip it. Bye. Burton's call ended nearly all doubts. I was being framed all right. And the trap required my leaving for Penn Station right away. I dropped the diamonds into what was left of a quart of milk I had for lunch the day before, put the bottle on the floor by the wastebasket. Then I took the package, rewrapped it, and went out to hail a cab. I made one stop at a toy shop, then headed for Penn Station. As I entered, I saw a pair of familiar figures. Rick! Okay, what's the gag? I got the tip, but even you wouldn't joke about this case. Now, Walt, I might joke about mass murder, but never about the commissioner being robbed. Is he making speeches yet? Yeah, that's okay, Shamus. This is one time when you're one diamond too many. Why, Otis, you're becoming a wit. Eh, uh, why not? You're halfway there. Oh, Lieutenant, he's picking on me again. You deserve it, Otis. Now, shut up. Rick, I know the tip was phony, but the commissioner was there when it came in. I had to act on it. Tip? Well, don't be smug. I've got one, too. Fifth at Hylia. Now, don't start that. It was a tip that you were taking the commissioner's diamonds out of town. Oh, now, Walt. And don't, oh, now, Walt me. I said I knew the tip was phony, but with the commissioner taking scouts all down the line, I didn't No, 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 no. Don't apologize, Walt. I know. Come on, Sergeant. Show me a good frisk, and I'll recommend you to all my criminal friends. Oh. Yeah. yeah, he's clean, Lieutenant. Now, Rick, let's see that package, and then you can go. This? Oh, no, no, I can't. It's secret. Don't play games, Rick, please. Oh, all right, but it's going to spoil my surprise. Well, okay. Give me your word it's got nothing to do with this case and I won't bother to open it. No, 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 I'm hurt. I absolutely insist that you open the package right now. But, Rick, you know I trust Lieutenant you. Lieutenant Levinson, do your duty. My purity must not be suspicioned. Oh, anything to get this over with. You were, uh, hmm... It's only a pair of dolls. Uh, you'll be expecting maybe my gallstones? Oh, dolls. <laughs> the Shamus place with dolls. <laughs> Better read the tag, Gordis, before your ears get any longer they draft you for a mule team. Tag? Sure. But what the, to my beloved Otis from his Ricky? Oh. Rick. Now, don't be a grouch, Walt. The other one's for you. For me? Oh, no. I'm sorry, Walt. I couldn't resist it. Anyhow, you spoiled my surprise to Otis. It was our anniversary. What? Our anniversary? We ain't even related. Oh, you don't remember? Oh, Otis. Well, Tennant, can I go back to traffic? I can't stand much more. Oh, shut up, Otis. Rick, if we weren't such good friends, I'd... I'd... Well, hey, now you're upset. Upset? Why should I be upset? Just because two hoods lift 50 grand in ice from the commissioner? Or because it's dumped in my lap with the murder of the gardener? Or that I'm given 24 hours to break the case and then get a tip that leads me to a friend who decides to play games and wreck my side to be on repair? Now, why should I be upset? 
Out of the... Here you are, Lieutenant. But take it easy. That's a second bottle of bicarb today. Walt, you rate an apology and I make it. I'll do better than that. I'll help you if you'll let me. Well, I can sure use your help, Rick. I haven't got a single lead. You want to look at the corpse first? May as well. Has he got a record? No. And the commissioner swears he was honest. Probably stumbled onto the thieves and they had to put him away. How about the rest of the servants? They were all out. The commissioner and his wife were at a party. They'd given the entire staff the night off, but... I guess perhaps the gardener returned a little early. Yeah, well, let's go down and take a look at him. I've got a personal interest that makes me want to crack this case. Uh, a client? Call him an ex-client. I'll explain him later. Come on. Uh, here he is, Rick. Ah, nasty cut. How was it made? Well, it... Could have been a sharp knife, but it's a safer bet that it was a razor. Mm, remind me not to go to his barber. What safe cracker's got enough nerve to pull his job, Walt? Well, I got three guys that could fit the job, but not one of them has ever been known to carry a weapon of any sort, much less a razor. Correction. One dealer, that gardener's playing a lousy joke on us. I suppose this could have been the first time one of them carried a razor. I don't buy that, neither do you. Give me the names. I want to talk to them. Maybe I can get a lead of some sort. Sure. Here they are. And please, Rick, call me if you get anything. If I can find a nickel. Bye. As far as I could see, I had three things to match up. One, the careless barber. Two, the safe cracker with nerve enough to rob the police commissioner. And three, the reason why I was picked as the pigeon. I gave up the idea of hunting for Burden, the guy who came into my office... He was probably a flunky and not worth running down. So I checked the names I got from Walt, grabbed a cab, and headed for the Bronx. The first turned out to be an ex-con trying to go straight by working in a Bronx hash house. The second was likely, but he'd kissed his wife with a beer bottle and spent last night in jail. At the third address, down in Greenwich Village, I met a landlady with gin-loaded tonsils and a cute mustache. She tipped me that my third prospect, Vincent Mayer, might be playing pinochle at Pietro's which turned out to be a cafe with a 30-foot bar, three tables, and a back room. Hey, uh, barkeep. Yeah. What'd it be, friend? Milk. No chaser. Milk? Who makes it? Oh, you mean like from cows. Never carried the stuff. Where can I find Vince Mayer? Why don't you ask me, handsome? Well, hello, baby. Now, do I look like a baby? Uh, no. My name's Jean. What do they call you? Take your pick. Call me Rick. Hey, you talk funny. But you're awful nice. Too nice to be hunting for Vince Mayer. He's a bad boy, Rick. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to be a hero. Where is he? In the back room. There. The guy with the light hair. But be careful. Thanks, baby. I'll buy you a palace. Eighty Mojo, twenty clubs, twenty spades, and forty pinochle. What? No diamonds? Hey. Uh, well, well, well. Look who's here. What do you want, Shamus? Vince, the Ice Man, isn't it? Well, now let's see. Sing Sing, class of thirty-eight. Where's your school tie, Vince? The name is Mister Mayor to you, Diamond, and privates are not welcome here. It's a closed game. Yeah. Move on. Give me a reason. You want to play dead? Oh, come on, Vince. You're not going to get upset just because I think you robbed the commissioner. You did, didn't you? I told my story to the cops. I'll bet. But you didn't answer my question. And here's another. Who's your barber? You're asking for it, Diamond. I was brought up right. Now, let's get off this cat and mouse kick. I want some answers, Vince. Do you? That's right, Junior, I do. All right. 
Call him, Joe. Hey, hey what? what? Oh. 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 All right, Joe. Stop it. Stop it. That's enough, Joe. All right, now drag him out in the alley. Uh, Vince, uh, can I, uh... Yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe it'll teach him not to get so nosy. But keep that razor in your pocket. I will, honest. This is gonna be real fun. Come on, Shamus. Here's where I do some road work on your liver. <laughs> Here, Mr. Diamond. I only wish my brother could see you. When I came to, I was curled up around a round metal object I couldn't see, and I felt as if I was smothered in a mountain of cotton, and getting out of it was like trying to shovel sand with a pitchfork. I finally managed to move and wished I hadn't, for a company of Bengal lancers began target practice on my side. So I quit trying and lay still for a long moment. Then a voice came fizzing through the cotton at me. Hey, mister, are you alive? Well, if I'm not, you're an angel, and this is a harp. Well, I'm sure no angel. And that's the garbage can. So I guess you're not dead. Matter for debate, Jeannie. Oh, help me up, will you? Sure. Here. Can you stand? Practically anything after this. Ooh. Hey, you hurt pretty bad. Come on, lean on me. My place isn't far. I'll take you there so you can lie down. Best offer I've had today. Lead on, angel. How do you feel? Uh, I never use language like that in front of a lady. Oh, I'm no lady. I'm a waitress at Pietro's. I heard the noise in the back room. When you didn't come out, I took a look. Ooh. Gee, does your head hurt, baby? Like all my relatives who are inside digging for gold, with luck I can open my eyes and they won't fall out. You know, we might have had a lot of fun together if you weren't all banged up like this. I'll take that remark up with you later, honey. I'm not usually the kind of guy who runs out on pretty girls, but I only wanted to get my hands on the gun if who tried to kick my brains out. So I took Jean's number, filed it under, uh, uh, for later investigation, and stumbled out into the street. My head was clearing, but it was as slow about it as a dummy doing a strip tease. Maybe that's why I didn't notice when I came out of the house that I had two guys for company. Hello, Diamond. Huh? Huh? When Pietro told me Jane had run out, I thought I might find you here. She always goes for guys like you. Well, she has taste. I'm glad you came around. I have a few things I want to discuss with you and Joel here. Uh, hold it, Thomas. Or I'll show you how easy it is to get rid of your troubles. Now, oh, now, that's a pretty little gun. Aren't you stepping out of character, Vince? You're supposed to be a smart one. You're getting on my nerves. Yeah? Well, put the gun away and I'll quiet you down a little. You want me to mess him up again, Vince? And what's with you? Come to do your job over again? I may at that. Yeah? Well, you got 32 teeth, sonny. Want to try for none? Why, you... I got some questions I'd still like to have answered. Why was I picked as pigeon? Why me? You're getting a little too smart, Diamond. Now, listen. I know you got wise to Burton, so it figures that you still got the package. Now, I got no reasons to give you $10,000 worth of diamonds. I want them back. Oh, dandy. I've got big news for you, Buster. You're not going to get them. Don't make any mistakes, Diamond. I'll use this gun if I have to. Ah, go eat a tombstone, Joe. Yeah, how's your stomach ache? Wait a minute, Joe. Now, Diamond, look, you can have a choice. You bring the rocks to me at Pietro's in an hour and we'll forget the whole thing. Or don't. 
And I'll send Joe with a few friends to call on you. And for the last time. For a few sick minutes, I leaned against the wall, wondering if I wanted to live. One thing I was certain of was that Vince Mayer was never going to get those diamonds back. Or was he? An idea began to percolate in my head to the tune of an old rhyme about a goose and a gander. And I got inspired enough to sit up and forget my aching ribs. When it simmered into a full-scale boil, I grabbed a cab, went back to my office, and got the diamonds out of the milk bottle where I'd hidden them. Then I headed for the village fast. I was soon banging on the door there like a drummer playing Bob. It ain't my cripple. I got the bruises to prove it. Come on in. Are you really recovered? What? Oh, no, not that much, Angel. Then? I need some answers. What do you know about Vince and Joe? Not too much. Enough to dislike them plenty. That Vince got me canned for leaving Pietro's to take care of you. That's why I'm back home. I know he's a smoothie, and he... I think he's a big-time jewel thief. Uh, that much I know. How about Joe, the dog-faced boy? Ah, uh, him, he's just a punk. I think his real name is Fanchi or uh, Fanchetti. Franchetti or some such thing. Franchetti? Yeah. I don't know why, but they call him Joe the Barber. Oh, Joe the Barber. Yeah. Isn't that silly? Mm. If he cuts hair, he doesn't. But I'll lay eight to one. This guy works on throats. Thanks, Angel. You've tied up my three points. What are you talking about? Your friend Vince Mayer lifted 50 grand in ice from the police commissioner last night, and his accomplice, Joe, gave the gardener a shave. You mean murder? On the button. The gardener's throat was sliced from life to death. And now, baby, look. How would you like to earn $100? Sure. Is it legal? Well, uh, no. I'll take it. Now, where is he? Will you tell me? Where's Rick? I know where I'd like him to be. I'm worried, Otis. Seriously. Rick is in this thing up to his ears. You mean he was in on that job? Don't be stupid, Otis. Of course not. Rick's no crook. But he's mixed up in this case somewhere, and I'm worried. He should have called me by now. Gee. Hope he hasn't tangled with that razor guy. I thought you hated Rick. Oh, you know I was just talking. I know, I know. What a mess. Rick in danger, and I can't find him. The commissioner's spouting lava all over the city hall... Why the devil did it have to be the commissioner's house? You know, it's kind of funny at that. The commission himself. <laughs> you knucklehead. For two cents, I'd... Maybe that's him. Lieutenant Levinson, homicide. Walt, Rick. Rick, I was... Where the devil have you been? Taking care of some arrangements. Arrangements? Never mind, just listen. I was picked as a pigeon and some of those diamonds were planted on me this morning. What? I've traced your hoods. They're Vince Mayer and Joe the Barber Franchetti. Now, you come to Pietro's in half an hour, you'll catch him with part of the diamonds on him. Rick, what is this? Well, Vince had it figured as a double-barrel gag, Walt. First on the cops by raiding the commissioner's house. Second by dumping a few of the rocks in my lap and tipping the police so I'd take the rap. But why you, Rick? Well, Joe's name, Franchetti. You remember, I sent his brother Tony to Sing Sing a few years back. Oh. I knew he had a brother, but until now, Joe stayed out of Manhattan. I get it. Okay, what's the play? Well, I'm... I'm going to take the package back to Vince. Give it to him in Pietro's. A girlfriend will be raising so much fuss and no one will notice me. Then as Vince and Joe leave, you nail him with the diamonds. And no alibi for having him. Right. You said uh, half an hour? In front of Pietro's.
Take a peek, Angel. Through the window. There's my party at the back table. Now, you know what to do. Yeah. I keep yelling till you get back to me. Right? There's rain. I'll make it a good one. I got good lungs. Let's go in. Okay, over to the bar. Lock Rick. There he is now, Joe. I told you he'd show up. Hello, Diamond. You got something for me? That's right, Vince. Okay, let's have it. Hey, what's going on over there? Don't stupid, Dame. Yeah, do you want the package or not? Oh, yeah, give it to me. Come on, Joe. Let's scram out of here before that dame brings her cops. Yeah. That's an easy way of getting back the ten grand, ain't it, Vince? Shut up. Come on. Take it easy now. Okay, okay. We're okay now. Let's split up. Hold it, Vince. What? Let's have a look at the package. Uh, the cops! Levinson, what are you doing? The here? package, Vince. Hey, what are we gonna do? Shut up. You, uh, got a warrant, of course. Of course. Otis, take the package. Yellowton. <laughs> you can't arrest me. I don't even know what's in that package. It was given to me by a friend. Now, don't use the term so loosely, Vince. Why, Walt, what are you doing here? Hello, Rick. I've captured a criminal. No. Yes, and he was carrying a package of his loot. Why, I bet it's part of that diamond robbery. Hey, what is all this? Diamond, you just planted that package on me. Me? Why, stranger, you're telling a fib. You just know that's downright immoral to something. Uh, this is ridiculous. Lieutenant, he gave me those diamonds and Pietros not five minutes ago. I didn't lift them from the commissioner. Didn't you, Vince? Why, then I must have made a mistake. You can prove your story, of course. Sure I can. Bartender saw Diamond slipping the package. Oh, now, Vance, you think that bartender was going to be watching you when a lovely girl is practically tearing up the joint? Boss, the dame yelling. She was a plant. Yeah, but this is a frame-up. Diamond, you can't get away with this. Please, don't talk to me. I never associate with common criminals. A frame? You dirty double-crossing copper. Look out, Rick. He's got a razor. Mm. Oh, my arm. Now, don't cry, Joe. This is for you. Oh. Wow. What a punch you got, Shamus. Well, that does it. Come on, Vince. Otis, load that killer into the car and pick up that razor. Yellowton. Want a lift, Rick? Eh, no thanks, Walt. I'm going to go home freshen up. Eh, you look like you could use it. Walton headed for my apartment where I grabbed a stomach full of vitamins and planted myself under the hot shower. It felt so good I fell asleep. And if Walt hadn't phoned, I'd have probably become the only man in history to drown in the shower. Walt shocked me wide awake with the news that he was holding a thousand dollar reward for me. I gave him my nicest thank you and made a mental note to drop by and give half of it to Jean to make up for her losing her job. Around about eight o'clock, after I'd taken care of dividing the reward... I steered for 975 Park Avenue, made it with no trouble, and rang the bell to Helen's apartment. Oh, good evening, Mr. Diamond. Miss Asher's expecting you, sir. She's in the library. Thank you, Francis. Uh, how's your health? Oh, my, my health, sir. It's a very good, thank you. Well, now, this may come as a shock. But, uh, Francis, uh, about the money I owe you... Oh, don't fret about it, sir. It will test... I'm going to pay you what I owe you. You're going to... Oh, dear. Uh, perhaps I better sit down. Oh, my word. Now, there, there, Francis. Rick Dunn, is that you? It ain't Tom Swift, baby. Come on in the library. 
Well, okay. But it'll do you no good, my dove. I'm a cripple, a battle-torn veteran. I don't want your muscles, Rick. I'm blue, and I want you to sing to me. Oh, Helen, baby, I don't want to sing. I want Rick, to... I'm blue. I need cheering up, not being nice and sing. Well, okay, honey. How's this, huh? I can see No matter how near you'll be You'll never belong to me But I can dream Can I? Can I pretend That I'm locked in the bed Of your embrace For dreams are just like wine And I am drunk sake, I forgot Francis. Francis? What are you talking uh, about? Come with me, I'll show you. Now, there he is. Francis, Francis, you all right? Oh, oh yes, sir. I think so, sir. Rick, will you tell me what's going on in my own home? Well, honey, I paid Francis off, and the shock of having to give back my gun and badge undid him. Oh, well, are you feeling better, Francis? Uh, not really much, Miss Asher. It's that badge and license. Will you miss him that much, Francis? Well, sir, to be very honest, there's a waitress in a tea shop down the street with whom I've been, if you'll pardon the expression, having a fling. Francis, you? Uh, oh, that's not the worst, Miss Asher. I'm afraid I've been a bit of a fraud with her as well. In fact, with several of the waitresses there. Now, wait, wait. Uh, where does my badge and license enter into it? Did you hock them for crumpets? Oh, much worse, Mr. Diamond. You see, to all the waitresses of Miss Tuppingham's tea shop, I am Richard Diamond, oh. private detective. Oh, oh no. just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Helen was played by Virginia Gregg, Gene Tatum, William Conrad, Tal Avery, and Bob Carroll. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Tonight's story was written by Herb Purdom and edited and directed by Blake Edwards. 
See the Richard Diamond picture story in the December issue of Movie Stars Parade. Dick Powell soon will be seen in the screen version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. Now, this is Eddie King inviting you to be with us again at the same time next week when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. The $50,000 Diamond Heist, an episode of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, from the day after what we now call Veterans Day in 1949. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There was a little bit of creative tension between co-producer Jill Errold Bailey and me over just what time of year state fairs take place. She thought they're mostly in August, and I thought they're mostly a little later, after the harvest is in. So we did a little research, and it turns out we're both right, and that state fairs pop up all over the calendar, July, August, September, October. Florida's is in February, which I guess makes a lot of sense. But late summer makes us think of these civic festivals, so we thought our last show in August would be a good time to feature one of America's favorite romantic stories, State Fair. Phil Stong's 1932 novel was turned into two feature films, a TV movie, a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, and not surprisingly, a radio play. Here's a half-hour non-musical adaptation by a gunsmoke writer, Kathleen Height. It stars Anne Blythe, and it comes from September 10th, 1953, CBS and the General Electric Theater. The General Electric Theater, tonight starring Miss Anne Blythe. This is Ken Carpenter welcoming you to the General Electric Theater, presented by the makers of famous, dependable kitchen and home laundry appliances, General Electric. Tonight, we bring you Anne Blythe in State Fair. Tonight, the General Electric Company is proud to present a story which, from the moment of its first appearance, has been taken to the heart of the American people. Also, it's a story perfectly suited to the talents of tonight's star, one of Hollywood's loveliest actresses. We're privileged to bring you a transcription of State Fair by Phil Stong, starring Miss Anne Blythe. And now, the first act of State Fair, starring Miss Anne Blythe. You salted the doors and windows, Abel? Yeah, tried them all, Mother. They're locked fast. You all right back there, Wayne? Fine, Dad. Blue Boy seemed content in his crate. How about it, Blue Boy? (laughs) (laughs) That's the best Hampshire boar in the state of Iowa. Oh, honestly, Daddy, get in the truck and let's get started. That's what I say, Margie. And leave it up to the judges at the fair whether or not Blue Boy wins the blue ribbon. Well, I'm willing to do that, Mother. Perfectly willing to. Take a good look at the house now. Won't set eyes on it for a full week. 
Won't set eyes on its conveniences either, not camping out the way we'll be. Oh, Daddy, will you please start the truck and drive out of here? All right, all right, Margie. But let's have a smile, honey, huh? After all, this is the best week of the whole year. The Freight family's going to the state fair. The whole year. That's the way Daddy and Mama and Wayne felt about Fair Week. For 51 weeks, they'd been dreaming about it, planning and working toward it. Daddy with Blue Boy, his prize boar, and Mama with her variety of pickles for the food exhibit. And Wayne... <laughs> oh, Wayne would win all the treasures at the hoopla games, or, or at least he should. And me? The only thing I was taking to the state fair was me. Why so quiet, Margie? Don't you feel well? Um, I was just watching the night. Well, now you might have been better company. Sorry, Daddy. Oh, now your father didn't mean it the way it sounds, Margie. He just means we're all going to the fair for a fine time. And you don't seem too happy about it. Oh, Mom, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm not unhappy. I just don't feel like saying anything, that's all. No need to talk so long as you feel all right. Oh, I feel all right. Uh... You're not my little girl this year, Margie. Any other year, you'd be prattling for weeks ahead of time all about the roller coaster, how high would it be, how many times could you ride it in one day, why even last oh, year... Oh, Daddy, you... please, this isn't last year, and I'm not your little girl. I'm 19 years old, and I'm... Oh, Mama, Mama. Yeah, now, Margie, dear, cry it out, honey. Whatever it is, wash it away. Did I say something wrong, Mother? We'll... We'll just all be a little quiet for a while. Yeah, sure, sure. Maybe just a little lover spat with Harry, huh? Now, Abel, it's all right. It's all go right ahead, Margie, dear. Cry all your tears. You'll feel better. I couldn't explain the tears. Not easily, and not for any reason they'd understand. I didn't really understand. I... I just knew that lately tears had come quickly for no reason or any reason. Harry was part of it, but not all of it. And Daddy was right. We had quarreled just the night before. We'd left the dance in Pittsville early, and after we drove home, we sat in Harry's roadster in the carriage yard and talked and talked. Oh, maybe you don't want to talk about it, Margie, but oh, I sort of have to. I, I'm not going to the fair with you because... Right now, I'm saving every nickel. When we get married this fall, I, I want to see a bit of the world before we have children to stop us. Harry. I thought we'd take the car to New York, and then maybe if I Harry, could... Harry, them... listen. Hmm? What are you going to do if I don't marry you? Margie, for ten years, I've never made any plan except with you in it. I don't know what I'd do. It wouldn't make much difference. That would make a nice honeymoon. I, I might almost marry you just to get to go along. Oh, no, not to go with me, but to be with me. You'll marry me because you want me. Because you love me. No, Harry, don't. Please don't. Oh, what's the matter, Margie, dear? Don't you want to kiss me anymore? I... I don't know. It doesn't look like it, does it? But it's nothing to cry about, honey. It's just <laughs> upset. It's all right. We'll be married tomorrow. 
Or, or anyway, just as soon as you get back from the state fair. And then... We're never going to be married. Oh, now, Marjorie. No, Harry, don't. I mean oh, it. come on now, honey. <laughs> I told Margie. you to stop, and I meant it. I don't want you to kiss me. I don't want to marry you. Oh, you'll change your mind. I'll wait, Margie. Oh. You've been edgy and restless like for the last few weeks. <laughs> you go on to the fair. That's all that's bothering it you. It isn't the fair. Oh, you don't understand. I'm telling you that I don't love you. That I won't marry you. Oh, you just need a change, Margie. A week at the fair will do wonders for you. You'll see. Everyone was so sure. The answer to all my problems was a week at the state fair. You'd think none of them had ever been 19. Harry or Daddy and Mama. Maybe they hadn't been the way I was. Full of feelings I didn't understand that welled up quickly and soared and flew and then slipped away into nothing and I'd be all empty inside and lonely. I didn't expect to find the answers at the state fair. Not even on the roller coaster. Well, if it isn't the cleanest boy in Tenth City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Two showers in one day. Who are you trying to impress? Nobody. But at least I go out where people are. I don't mope around the tent all day. Oh, now see here, the two of you. I want no fights. This is fair week. And everybody's going to enjoy it if I have to follow them around with a shotgun. I'm sorry, Mama. Don't be sorry to me. I, I didn't mean anything, Wayne. I, I apologize. Oh, uh, that's all right, sis. I, I, I could have let it pass. Oh, well, now, that's better. Why don't you two youngsters run down to the midway now and enjoy yourselves together, huh? You can sleep late in the morning. Now, skedaddle, both of you. the game liked you. Can you push your way through? I think so. Follow me. I'll tell you what, sis. You go on up and buy a ticket. I'll meet you right in front there in just a few minutes. All right. I just remembered, I met a guy this afternoon, a guy from Des Moines here. I didn't have any plans then, and I told him I'd meet him at the hoopla booth about now. You sure? I mean, if you want to go with your friend, I'll understand. Oh, I want to go with you. No kidding. I just think I ought to meet this guy and tell him so. That's all. I won't be over five minutes. Ten minutes after I bought the tickets. When he still didn't come, I decided to ride the roller coaster once and meet him there afterward. Most of the cars were filled by the time I climbed up the steps, and then I saw the empty one up near the front. All right, pretty ruin that car up there, oh, lady. Yes, I see there is. I, I'm just trying to decide if I, I, I want a car all to myself. Yeah, make up your mind, lady. We're going to roll in just a minute. First. Oh, yeah, Pat. See the empty up there? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, uh, and how about taking the little lady with you? She's all alone. And... Oh, that's not necessary. I, I... Oh, glad to have you. Well, I, I... Lady, lady, will you please? We can't make any money sitting still. Come on, I'm harmless, especially in a roller coaster. Oh, my, my word of honor, lady. Why, he's a regular boy. <laughs> well, uh, all right. I, I don't want to hold everyone else up. Good girl. Here we go. Thank you. That's it. Ah. Oh, Not bad so far, is it? <laughs> no. All aboard, roller! <laughs> you, you like roller coasters? Oh, yes, yes, I do. 
Uh, they don't frighten you? Oh, no. Uh, no. That's good. This one's a Lulu. That's good. the ride going on here, the delirium of motion as we come. Higher, higher and then rocking downward. Oh, whipped around curves and bounced and leaped over upgrades. And only when we began to glide down the last long pleasant grade did I let go. They don't frighten you, huh? Well, they, they don't usually... I don't know what happened this time. I'm sorry to be so rough with you, but I was afraid you were going to faint there. You're white as a sheet right now. I, I never fainted in my life. But I almost did that time. <laughs> Want to try it again? Oh, no, not for anything. Not for anything in the world. Oh, it's not nearly so bad the second time. And the third is positively tame. You know what to expect. You can shut your eyes in the worst places. Oh, it's terrible. Come on, you can hide your face again if you get scared. Oh, no, it isn't that. It's just that I... Uh, I told you. I told you I'm harmless, especially in a roller coaster. Oh, I'm not worried about you. I mean, you don't bother me. I mean, oh, let's ride it again. Blythe is appearing by arrangement with MGM, producers of Dory Sherry's Take the High Ground, starring Richard Widmark, Elaine Stewart, and Carl Malden. And now with our star, Miss Anne Blythe, we bring you the second act of State Fair. The second time wasn't nearly so bad, and the third time, well, the roller coaster was positively tame. His name was Pat Gilbert. He was tall, very blonde with a tan, lean face. Oh, it was a pleasant face. Not handsome, really, but pleasant. His eyes were sort of sleepy-looking, and he smiled a lot. Oh, a nice smile. The kind of smile that could make a girl forget a lot of things. Oh, my golly. What's the matter? I forgot all about Wayne. Wayne? My brother. Oh, I was supposed to meet him at the roller coaster. I'm glad you didn't. Oh, I know, but I... I, I mean, I, I hope he's not still waiting for me. <laughs> hope my folks aren't worried. You live here in Des Moines? No, no, we're staying up at Tent City. Mama, Daddy, and uh, Wayne and myself. You know, you're nice. Thank you. And you're beautiful. Really beautiful. You know that? What newspaper do you work for, Pat? Des Moines Register, but you're still beautiful. <laughs> if you're a newspaper man, what were you doing on a roller coaster? I like roller coasters. You like them? I like to ride them. <laughs> uh, there's motion, there's excitement, uh, dozens of stimuli. I don't know, maybe I'm neurotic. 
<laughs> Everything that anyone does anymore outside of a recognized drab pattern is neurotic. <laughs> but I like to ride roller coasters. Lock me up. I like them. I like them, too. <laughs> well, there you are. Now, you're an intelligent girl. Almost as old for a woman as I am for a man. Am I? Oh, women learn everything sooner. Like you like to ride roller coasters, so do I. We've got a lot in common. Pat walked me home, up the hill and beyond the gulch to Tent City. It wasn't late, but the tent was dark and quiet when we got there. I didn't know what to do, and I, I didn't know what he'd do. We looked back down at the lights of the fair, and it seemed a long time ago that I'd gone down there with Wayne, wondering whether to become a part of it or stay on the hill and imagine it. I was glad I'd gone down. I think so. Uh, isn't that her hat bobbing around over near the judge's stand? No, I don't see her. Oh, yes, yes, now I do. Oh, I'll bet she's nervous. I'm sort of nervous for her. <laughs> yeah, me too. Now, let's go hold her down. I sure am sorry about last night, sis. This guy kept talking, and when I got back to the roller coaster, I guess you'd gone. Oh, that's all right. In all that crowd, it's no wonder we couldn't find each other. How was it? Was what? The roller coaster, silly. What else are we talking about? Oh, 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 the roller coaster. Oh, fine. Just fine. You sure have changed since yesterday. An improvement? I'll say. The old state fair sure fixes things up, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. Your attention, please. Your attention. Here are the awards in the pickles and preserves category. First prize, sweet pickles, Mrs. A.R. Frake. Brunswick, Iowa. Hey! Oh, well, Mama, you won! Hey, Mom, that's great. Oh, now, 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 Mrs. A.R. Frake of Brunswick, Iowa. Oh, no! the pickles, sweet Oh, let them take children. Stop pulling me, the two of you. You, you know I don't take the soft soap. Yeah, I'm going to find Dad. Oh, oh, Mama, bless your heart. We're so proud. Oh, I declare. All this fuss and fume. Congratulations, Mrs. Frake. Oh, I beg your pardon, young man. I'm a reporter from the Des Moines Register, Mrs. Oh. Frake. We'd like a little story and your picture. It's all right with you? Well, well, well now, that's real nice, isn't it, Margie? Uh, Margie? I just stared at him. I couldn't help it. I don't think Mama noticed it much. Oh, she posed like a veteran, surrounded by her prize-winning pickles and me. Oh, I, I don't know which of us was more bewildered as she left us and started up Camper's Hill. Bless her. Just bless her. She's nice, too, your mother. Oh, we're a nice family. I know. At least I know about everyone but Wayne. Oh, you don't know Daddy or, or Blue Boy? Yes, I do. I <laughs> met them both a few minutes ago. You met Daddy and Blue Boy, but... <laughs> Best Hampshire boar in the state of Iowa. Oh, Golly, how wonderful for Daddy. Mm -hmm. Blue Boy took a pretty good picture, too. Check tomorrow's paper. Nothing but freaks and blue ribbons. Oh, 
funny. I'm not even sure yet, but I want to introduce you to my family, and, and here you've met most of them all by yourself. Have dinner with me. We'll talk about that, huh? I'd like to. What? No argument? <laughs> I expected one. You're sure you're the same girl I met last night? Not sure at all, Pat. <laughs> had dinner and talked, rode the roller coaster and talked. Pat had been almost everywhere, done almost everything, and I wanted to hear all about it and him. Sometime during the evening, that strange, empty feeling inside of me disappeared, and a new feeling took its place, brand new. I didn't ask any questions about it. I, I didn't have to. I knew I was falling in love. Funny. Just a few feet on the other side of that tree is the path up to Camper's Hill. And it feels like we might be anywhere in the world. We are. Anywhere in the world we want to be. I want to be here. Out of all the world. You're here. Oh, I know how that sounds, but I mean it, Margie. You're, you're here. I want to be with you. Be honest with me, Pat. I am. I have been, remember? I started out saying you were nice. Then you were beautiful. That was honest. So is this. Oh, Pat. I love you, Margie. Pat, I'm afraid. Of me? Of us. I love you, too, as much as I know about love, I don't really know much, Pat. I, I haven't been all your places. I've not done very much or lived very much, really. We could fix all that. I want to marry you, Margie. Do you really? Yes, I do, really. I want to marry you tonight. Before you have time to think. Oh, no, Pat, no. I want to know to be sure. I'm thinking about it, Margie. I really am. I want everything to be as clear as you do. And I want everything to be as sure as you do, but I want it to be soon. I... I haven't been a saint, Margie. No, I... I don't imagine you have. I even said I love you before, a lot of times. A few of those times I've met it. I thought I did. Oh, then what makes it different this time, Pat? If it is. It is. I've asked you to marry me. And live where? How? What kind of a life? Is that so very important? If we're together? How about a farm in Brunswick? Is that what you want? It's, it's what I know, and Yes, I, I think it is what I want, Pat. I, I never thought so, especially until now... When we left to come to the fair, I'd have sworn I wanted anything but a farm in Brunswick. Margie, is there someone back in Brunswick? There is a boy who loves me. Well, then... I don't love him. I love you, Pat. Only somehow I... I have the feeling I'll wake up and find you're gone and... and that it's all been just a part of the state fair. You think you can find out back in Brunswick? If I do, 
Can I write you, Pat? Write. Soon, darling. Or don't write ever. Yes, Daddy. <laughs> Look at your mother all played out. Not a peep out of Wayne since Oskaloosa. Mm. Now, almost morning. Oh, everything's so fresh and still. Best time of the whole day, just before dawn. You glad to be going home, honey? Mm-hmm. Yes, Daddy. I'm glad. Harry will be waiting, I guess. I guess he will. Fine boy, Harry. Yes, he is a fine boy. Oh, I hope he'll find a fine girl soon and get married. Hmm? Not you, Margie? I don't love him, Daddy. Uh-huh. Well, then, don't marry him, honey. I, uh, was right about one thing on the drive down. You're not my little girl anymore, Margie. You've grown up all in one week. I think maybe I have. Anyway, I'm I'm a lot happier now, Daddy. Things are so much clearer. Well, I'm sure glad for you, honey. Yes, sir. Well, it's been quite a fair week for the Frake family. Mm-hmm. Don't suppose we'll be able to get a thing done for months now after all the excitement of the state fair. Oh, I'll get something done when I get home. I'm going to write a letter. Yeah. How's that, Margie? I said, I'm going to write a letter. That's so? It sure is, Daddy. It sure is so. And Blythe will be back in just a moment. Now our star, Miss Anne Blythe. I'd like to say how much I enjoyed playing in State Fair tonight. Not only because it's a wonderful story, but also because the background is so different and stimulating to those of us who are obliged to live in cities. Yes, I know what you mean, Anne. I'd like to attend a State Fair myself sometime. Yes, but instead, you know, you'd probably find yourself at Ciro's or the Macombo. <laughs> probably, but after all, Anne, there are some advantages to city living. Certainly there are. But have you ever thought how long a city, any city, would survive without the country people to supply it and keep it alive? No, it hadn't occurred to me, Anne. I guess not very long. Oh, don't look so worried, Ken. You'll still get your steak for dinner. (laughs) I certainly hope so, Anne. And thank you for being with us tonight. It was a great pleasure. Good night, everybody. Theater has brought you State Fair, starring Miss Anne Blythe. Featured in tonight's cast were Verna Felton, Tom Tully, Sam Edwards, Joe Kearns, Dick Ryan, and Lamont Johnson. State Fair was written by Phil Stong and adapted for radio by Kathleen Height with editorial supervision by Het Mannheim and music by Wilbur Hatch. General Electric Theater is transcribed in Hollywood by Jaime Del Valle. <laughs>
host, Ken Carpenter, inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when General Electric, makers of famous, dependable kitchen and home laundry appliances, will bring you James and Pamela Mason in Cyrano de Bergerac on the General Electric Theater. Join us, won't you? This is the CBS Radio Network. State Fair. From the time of year when there were lots of state fairs, the late summer of 1953, and from the General Electric Theater. You heard it here on the big broadcast. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. I'm Murray Horwitz. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. At the turn of the millennium in 2000, there were a lot of lists published. The best books of the 20th century, the best athletes of the 20th century, etc. At least one of those lists picked Over the Rainbow as the best American song of the 20th century, and in this hour, we're going to hear its first ever public performance. It came via radio on a show called Good News of 1939, It had started as Good News of 1938, and as Newsweek magazine noted, it was the first major collaboration of a movie studio and a broadcasting system. The network was NBC, and the movie studio was MGM. It used the program to promote its films with little condensed versions of them, along with features and musical performances, and a weekly comedy turn by Fanny Bryce as Baby Snooks. The Wizard of Oz was a highly anticipated movie, and Good News used its last show of the 1938-39 season to promote it, two months ahead of its premiere. It was their last chance to do so before the nationwide release of the film, 80 years ago tonight, August 25, 1939. We'll not only hear Judy Garland singing Yip Harburg and Harold Arlen's most famous tune, we'll hear the songwriters themselves along with Burt Lahr, Ray Bolger, Frank Morgan, and the show's host, Robert Young, substituting for an absent Jack Haley as the Tin Man. The 1902 Broadway musical based on L. Frank Baum's classic was still very much in people's memories in 1939, and we'll hear an interview with the scarecrow in that production, Fred Stone. Here with Meredith Wilson and his orchestra, is the very first time Americans got to hear the gorgeous song score of The Wizard of Oz from NBC, June 29th, and Good News of 1939. Maxwell House Coffee presents this season's final edition of Good News of We welcome you to an hour of entertainment brought to you by the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios in Hollywood with a special list of guest stars from the cast of The Wizard of Oz. Judy Garland, Bert Lahr, and Ray Bolger, E.Y. Harburg, Harold Allen, plus the regular Good News gang, Frank Morgan, Fanny Bryson, Hanley Stafford, and Meredith Wilson and his orchestra. And here is your host for this evening, Robert Young. 
Good evening, folks. Although this is the closing program of this season's Good News series, this is not going to be a sad party. No, sir. We're going to try to give you something to remember us by. We're going to introduce for the first time some of the loveliest music you've ever heard. We're going to present the exciting personalities for whom this music was written. In short, we're dedicating our entire program to MGM's newest screen achievement, The Wizard of Oz. As most everybody knows by now, The Wizard of Oz stars Judy Garland, Frank Morgan, Ray Bolger, Burt Lahr, Jack Haley, Billy Burke, and Margaret Hamilton, and was directed by Victor Fleming. And now heard for the first time on the air, an overture of the songs from The Wizard of Oz written by E.Y. Harburg and Harold Arlen, played for us by Meredith, the Wilson of Oz. Oh, my God. 
play many an overture, but none more thrilling than this one. Oh, shucks, Bob. It weren't nothing. <laughs> All I can say about the Wizard of Oz music is that it's so unusual and so lovely that it's a real thrill to play it. You know, Bob, I can hardly wait to see the Wizard of Oz. It's my favorite story. Mine, too. Well, I'll never forget the first time the story was told to me. It was thrilling. My uh, school teacher held me on her lap. Oh, to be 18 again. That was Meredith Wilson, the oomph boy. While Meredith lives among his memories of happy school days, suppose we continue with our study of child life. Here she is, that little decoy for a nervous breakdown. Fanny Bryce as Baby Snooks. Last week, Daddy, played by Hanley Stafford, became the proud father of a lovely boy. Naturally, he's all wrapped up in the little one. But Snooks seems to feel that the newcomer has usurped her place in Daddy's affections. She's been acting strangely all week, and as the scene opens, Daddy is putting Snooks to bed. Here they are. All right, dear. Say your prayers, and I'll turn out the light. I'm going to say no prayers. Oh, but Snooks, you must say your prayers. Can I leave out the baby? Why, of course not. Then I ain't going to say no prayers. Now, look here, child. You don't know how you're hurting me by acting this way. I can't understand why you've been so sullen since the baby came. I don't like him. Well, why not? He hollers too much. Why, of course he cries a lot, but that's only his way of letting us know that he wants something. Oh, why don't he ask for it? Oh, Snooks, you know as well as I do that infants can't talk. Why? Because no baby talks until it's at least a year old. That ain't what you said to Uncle Louie. What did I say to Uncle Louie? You said you cursed the day you was born. Well, never mind that. Now, I want you to say your prayer. There he goes again, Daddy. Well, Mummy will look after him. Little Dickens is probably hungry. Where did he come from, Daddy? I told you, the angels in heaven sent him down. Why? Oh, they had their reasons. I guess they couldn't stand that racket. <laughs> I wish you'd stop that silly talk. The child is adorable, and you'll soon get to love him. Don't you think he's awful cute to look at? No. Oh, why do you say that? He looks like a lobster. <laughs> well, he is a little red, but all new babies look that way. Anyway, the redness will soon disappear. Will the baby disappear? <laughs> now, if I can help it. Oh. Daddy. What is it? Is only baby's faces red? Oh, no. Sometimes grown people's faces get red. Why? Oh, for various reasons. 
Mostly a person's face turns red when, when he's ashamed. Does it? Yes. Why does Uncle Looney, Uncle Louie only get ashamed in his nose? Well, we won't discuss that now. It's time for you to go to sleep. Now kiss me good. Snooks, what are you doing? I'm doing nothing, Daddy. You're biting your nails. I told you I don't like that habit. Why? Because it's not nice. Now you stop it, you hear me? I don't want to. Oh, maybe you'd like a spanking. You hate me, don't you, Daddy? Oh, what are you talking about? If I bite my nail, you spank me. Well, what about it? But if that new kid sticks his whole foot in his mouth, you think it's cute. <laughs> oh, what ridiculous nonsense. <laughs> now, just listen, Snooks. You've simply got to get over this jealousy. I'm jealous. Yes, you are. No, I ain't. You are! <laughs> what are you crying about? I don't know. <laughs> well, all right, now. Be a good little girl and go to sleep, and Daddy will always love you. All right, Daddy. Good night. Good night. Daddy? Yes? Why are you all dressed up? Well, I've been invited over to the MGM Studios to see a picture. What picture? It's a private showing of The Wizard of Oz. I've got to leave right away. I want to go with you. Well, you can go with me, Snooks. <laughs> But if you promise not to interrupt, I'll tell you the story very quickly. I promise, Daddy. Very well. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who lived in Kansas, and her name was Dorothy. She lived with her... Who uh, lived? Dorothy. She lived Dorothy with... Dorothy who? Just Dorothy. And she lived with... Her aunt and her uncle. <laughs> uncle Louis? No, Uncle Henry. Her aunt's name was Em, and her uncle's name was Henry, and she lived with them. Now, she was just a little... Who was? The little girl... Little girl. The little girl in the story. What story? The Wizard of Oz. Uh. <laughs> I don't ask any more questions. I'll be late for the picture. Now this little girl Dorothy lived with her aunt and her uncle. Why? Because her parents died when she was a child and left her an orphan. What did she do with it? What did she do with what? The orphan. She was the orphan. Who was? Dorothy. Ah. <laughs> Dorothy loved her uncle very much because he gave her a dog called Toto. He was black all over. Her uncle was black? No, her dog. One day there came a big cyclone, and Aunt Em... Oh, what's a cyclone, Daddy? You know what a cyclone is, Snooks. What is it that comes very suddenly, turns a whole house upside down, and leaves nothing but trouble in its wake? A new baby. <laughs> No. It's a big windstorm. When the cyclone struck, Dorothy didn't have time to get to the cellar. So she was swept away in the house with Toto. And she was carried... Who was carried? Dorothy. She was carried... Oh, where's the wizard? I'm coming to him if you'll just be patient. She was carried to the land of the munchkins. What's munchkins? They're very little people. Am I a little munchkin? No. <laughs> well, I'm little, ain't I? Listen, you can be little without being a munchkin. But you can't be a munchkin without being little. Why? Because munchkins are born little and they stay little. Children are born little and they grow up to be big. Big munchkins? No, big people. Will I grow up to be big? Certainly will. Big again, Sophie? Yes. <laughs> what are you yelling about? I want to be a munchkin. Oh, for heaven's sake. I've got to get to the studio. Will you keep quiet until I finish the story so you can go to sleep? No. Oh, you don't want to hear the end of the story? No. Well, that's fine. You want to go right to sleep? No. You don't want to hear the end of the story? You don't want to go to sleep? In heaven's name, what do you want? I want to go see the picture. Oh, well. With a new baby and everything, you have had a tough week. I get dressed. I'm going to take you with me. Why? 
Oh, just on account of the new baby. Oh. Daddy? Yes? Have another baby next week so I can go to the circus. <laughs> All right, I'll order it right away. Come on. We're yeah, off, off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you behind the scenes and show you how a picture was created. Early in 1938, MGM selected Mervyn Leroy to produce The Wizard of Oz. The screen adaptation having been completed, the momentous task of casting the players for each of the many important parts was attacked. The role of the Scarecrow had been assigned to Ray Bolger. The clattering, squeaking Tin Woodman was Jack Haley. The blustering, whimpering, cowardly lion was Bert Lahr. Glinda the Beautiful Fairy Queen, Billy Burke. But what of the wizard himself? Who was humorous enough, clever enough, and foolish enough to play the wizard? And equally important, what of Dorothy, a sweet little girl who journeys to the land of Oz? Not only must she be a fine actress, but she must be a great singer. And so, in June 1938, in the office of producer Leroy... May I come in, Mr. Leroy? Judy. I'll say you may come in. I just called you at your house. Your mother said you were on your way to the studio. Uh, I just couldn't stay home. I was so nervous. Nervous? Why should you be nervous, Judy? Well, after all, Mr. Roy, I was thinking maybe I'm not good enough for the part. And... Well, Judy, even a smart little girl like you can be wrong. We've just seen the test we made of you for the part and... You mean I'm... Well, you've guessed it. You're Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, Mr. Leroy... It can't be true. I, I dreamed and hoped for a chance like this, but I never really thought I'd be so lucky. Well, you're not lucky. We're the lucky ones. Oh, but, Mr. Leroy, I just can't believe it. But if I do wake up and it's all true, I, I promise I'll work and study and, and do anything to make good. Spoken like the real trooper that you are, Judy. <laughs> well, I think I better go now. I mean, do you mind? Will you excuse me if I run home and tell my mother the news? She'll be so thrilled. Run along, Judy, and best of luck. Oh, I'm so happy. I, Well, all I can think of is thank you, Mr. Leroy. Thank you, Judy. I mean, Dorothy. And so Judy Garland was selected to play the lovable Dorothy, a little girl who travels to the land of Oz and once there, despite its beauty, longs to return to the most desirable place on Earth, home. Now, Metro had one more casting problem. Who could play the Wizard of Oz, that lovable humbug, that man with a power complex, in short, that delightful phony? The scene, the casting office on the MGM lot. I remember it well because on that particular day, I happened to drop in to see Fred Dating myself. Hello, casting office. Who? Oh, Ed Sullivan. No, they haven't decided who will play the Wizard. We'll call you. Goodbye. Good morning, Mr. Young. Hello, Marcella. Say, why is the office so crowded? I haven't seen so many men packed into one room since I visited the SS Rex. Well, there's a call out today for the Wizard of Oz. They need someone to play the title role. Oh, I see. The boss has interviewed hundreds for the part in the last two months. He... Wait a second. Here he is now. Hello, Bob. Hello, Fred. Well, we've got a wizard at last. You have a wizard. Tell us about it. Gentlemen, I want to thank all of you for coming today. The studio has made a definite decision. The part of the Wizard of Oz has been given to Frank Morgan. I demand a recount. Why, well, I'm a better actor than he is any day. The idea of giving a juicy part like that to such an incompetent loafer. Frank, 
Morgan? Why, that's me. <laughs> and so the casting of The Wizard of Oz is complete. And then comes the news that rehearsals are to start. For this picture, unlike other pictures, required months of extensive rehearsals before even a foot of film was shot. The scene, a rehearsal stage where the director has been working with the cowardly lion, played by Bert Lahr. So who's a cowardly lion? Why, I can lick anybody half my size. The bigger they are, the harder I fall. No, no, Bert, I don't think that your mood conveys enough courage. Now, remember, you're a braggart. I gotcha, I gotcha. Why, I'll tear apart the toughest lion in town. I'll lick my weight in lioness potatoes. Come on, put them up, put them up. Ah, oh, run away, eh? I'll show you. There, take that. How do you like that guy? Knocked himself out again. And The Wizard of Oz being more than just a picturization of the book was to be an enchanting musical operetta. And so E.Y. Harburg and Harold Arlen were assigned the task of writing the music and lyrics. For long weeks, Harburg and Arlen worked until the day that their score was completed. And then, in the penthouse overlooking the studio lot where the composers lived, with their piano. Hello, Mr. Harbert. Hello, Mr. Arlen. Hello, Judy. We've been waiting for you. Judy, we've just finished writing one of the songs you're to sing in The Wizard of Oz. And no one's heard it yet. So we've got our fingers crossed. Oh, I can hardly wait. Will you play it now? Just sit you here, Judy. Lend us your ears. You actually mean I I'm going to be the first one to hear this? That's right. But I hope you're not the last one that's going to hear it. Now, this song is the theme of the entire picture. You're the little girl in Kansas. That unhappy little girl who's always yearning to be somewhere else but home. Oh, but I like my home. We don't mean your home in Bel Air, Judy. We mean the home in the picture. Oh, you mean, you mean I'm, I'm always trying to escape from myself. Mm-hmm. That's it, Judy. And we try to express that yearning, the yearning of all little girls in this song. Sing it, Harold. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue, and the dream that you dare to dream really do come true. That's beautiful. I can hardly wait to learn it. Will you teach it to me, please? Now? Once in a 
And on another rehearsal stage, Bobby Connolly, ace director of dancers, is rehearsing 150 of the world's smallest people who play the part of the fantastic munchkins in Munchkinland. All right, now, everybody on the mark. Let's make this rehearsal a good one. Now, remember, as you dance, you've got to sing. And you're happy because the wicked old witch of the East is no more. Ready. So it went. Weeks and weeks of rehearsal. Then months and months of work. Work in which over 7,000 people all took a hand. Until finally that certain night came. The night when Mervyn Leroy was to take the first complete print of the picture out for a sneak preview to get the audience reaction. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been managing this theater for many years. Hundreds of important films have been previewed here. But tonight we present a sneak preview of a picture I know everybody's been waiting to see. For the first time on the screen of any theater, MGM's Technicolor production of The Wizard of Oz. And for almost two hours, 2,000 people, young and old, sat in that theater in rapt attention as the Wizard of Oz unrolled before them on the screen in all the glory of its beautiful Technicolor production. When it was over, the cheers and applause of the audience were deafening. The Wizard of Oz will be released to theaters throughout the country on August 25th, and I know you'll all want to see it when it plays your favorite theater. Now, in just a few moments, all of you will become guests at the big studio party, which is being held this evening in honor of the Wizard of Oz cast where you Maxwell House friends will hear for the first time on the air a special preview of music and meet the famous characters in The Wizard of Oz. Bert Lahr, Ray Bolger, Judy Garland, Fred Stone, and many others. Now, good news goes to a party. We ask you to imagine yourselves on stage 30 of the metro Golden mayer lot in the shadow of beautiful Emerald City, where scenes of The Wizard of Oz were made. Here in this beautiful setting, Judy Garland entertains our guests by singing her big song in the picture, Over the Rainbow. Judy? Behind me 
Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where you That sounds like a surefire hit, and you sang it beautifully. Thank you. Have I told you I think you're absolutely magnificent in the picture? Well, no, you haven't. All right, you are. What? Absolutely magnificent. Oh, thank you. Now, Judy, don't run away. We want you to sing some more later. But right now, I want everybody to meet two other members of the wizard cast. Bert Lauer, the cowardly lion, and Ray Bolger, the straw man. These two characters, along with Jack Haley, who plays the Tin Woodman are Judy's companions on her trip through the land of Oz. And if we had Jack Haley here, we could present their song. We can do it without Haley, Bob. How? You sing Haley's part. Nobody will know the difference. I bet Haley will know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jack's in New York and can't be with us. But if the cowardly lion and the straw man have no objections, I'll be glad to double in time. Let's have a whack at it, Meredith. First, Ray Bolger as the straw man. 
I could while away the hours Conferring with the flowers Consulting with the rain And my head I'd be scratching While my thoughts were busy hatching If I only had a brain I'd unravel every riddle For any individual In trouble or in pain With the thoughts you'd be thinking You could be a Nasser Lincoln If you only had a brain Oh, I could tell you why The ocean near the shore I could think of things I never thought before And then I'd sit and think some more I would not be just a nothing My head all full of stuffing My heart all full of pain And perhaps I'd deserve you And be even worthy of you If I only had a brain Now Bob Young doubling for Jack Haley as a tin woodman When a man's an empty kettle he should be on his mettle, and yet I'm torn apart. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. I would register emotion, jealousy, devotion, and really feel the part. I would stay young and chipper, and I'd lock it with a zipper. If I only had a heart. Now, Bert Lauer is the cowardly lion. Gee, it's sad, believe me, Missy, when you're born to be a sissy without the women boy. But I could show my prowess, be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. I'm afraid there's no denying. I'm just a dandelion, a fate I don't deserve. I'd be brave as a blizzard. I'd be gentle as a lizard. I'd be clever as a gizzard. If the wizard is a wizard who will serve, then I'm sure to get a brain, a heart, a home, the name. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest this evening at our party. A man who has a special and unique reason for being at any celebration connected with the Wizard of Oz. Because 35 years ago, he and his famous partner were the stars of the original Broadway production of The Wizard. You've all heard of the team of Montgomery and Stone. And I know you'll join me in saluting Fred Stone here tonight. Fred, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you very much, Bob. Fred, there's one fellow here tonight you certainly ought to meet. And that's the man who plays your original part in the picture, the straw man. That's the role you created, isn't it? That's right, the straw man, Bob. Well, I want you to shake hands with Ray Bolger, the straw man in the picture. Ray, this is Fred Stone. <laughs> Fred Stone? Oh, Mr. Stone, I've always considered you the greatest eccentric dancer that ever lived. Well, thank you, Ray. I sincerely consider you the finest eccentric dancer of the present time. In fact, I can truthfully say... 
You're the man I'd have chosen to play the part of the straw man myself. Oh, gosh, that, that means a lot coming from you. Well, we thought we had a grand production in The Wizard. Uh, it was pretty good, too, in 1904. Uh, it was, uh, of course, you know, in those days, in those days, yes, it was all right. 1904. Gosh, Mr. Stone, why, that was the year I was born. You don't say. Well, young man, I'm thrilled to meet you. Here, so many years later. No, I'm the one that's thrilled. I remember when you came to Boston at the Colonial Theater in your great show, uh, Jack-O-Lantern, which, by the way, was the first show that I was ever allowed to see. And your wonderful performance on that show gave me my inspiration to be an actor, you know. <laughs> well, Ray, you've done a pretty good job for yourself. I wish I could think of an answer, Mr. Stone. That's all right, son. The straw man is supposed to think. He never had a brain. <laughs> Say, am I supposed to take that as a compliment? Certainly, my boy. From now on, I'll always think of Ray Bulger as a straw man. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Well, Mr. Stone, I know just how you must yeah, feel it. Yeah, what's going this... on here? <laughs> oh, Frank, uh, this gentleman here was just comparing the Metro production of The Wizard with the original production on Broadway. Really? Well, I was great in the Broadway production, too. Did you see it, young man? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> are, are you addressing me? Uh, that production was a notable triumph for me. We played for months and months, and every night the crowds used to cheer madly every time Frank. I went into my... What? You were in the original Broadway production of The Wizard? Well, of course, I was a star. And every night, beautiful girls used to hang around the stage door waiting to see me. Right. When I came up, what? <laughs> let, let him go on, Bob. This is very interesting. Yes, you're quite right, young man. In, uh... <laughs> In those days, I used to save my notices, and the critic on the New York Globe said, Frank Morgan... Hey, now, wait a minute. What? Did you ever hear Fred Stone? I understand he was in The Wizard of Oz. Frank Stone? Fred Stone. Uh, Fred Stone. Uh, oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, the boy came to me when the show was about to open, and I made a dancer of him. I, uh... <laughs> I gave him a small part in the production, and he made a... Well, it was a very respectable showing. <laughs> Take it, Fred. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Uh, Frank Morgan, I'm Fred Stone. I starred in the original production of The Wizard with my partner, Dave Montgomery. And I don't, I don't remember you at all. That's uh, right, Frank. Stone and Montgomery were the stars of the show, and you were never with them. Uh, Stone and uh, Montgomery. Uh, <laughs> Stone, uh, Stone, Brick, uh, Boulder, Dam, Boulder, Dam, Pepper. Uh, Rock, rock. It all comes back to me now. I spent my time with rock and rye. Rock and rye. Yeah. That was a great combination. Well, I'm glad to have met you, Mr. Rock. I've got to go to the... I'm, I'm... <laughs> That's all right, Mr. Morgan. I've got to go myself. Oh. Yeah. I, and I still think that you did a great job in The Wizard. <laughs> <laughs> That's not static, folks. That's the old, old scarecrow. So long, boy. Oh, so long, Mr. Stone. Thank you. Say, Frank, this being the last program of the season, why don't yes. you give the people a treat and tell the truth for five minutes? My dear boy, the Morgans have always lived sans peur et sans rapproche. Oh. <laughs> from my earliest infancy, I was taught the virtue of honesty, and from manhood on, I have employed only the truth. There's been a lot of unemployment lately. <laughs> yes. Young... Metro is taking you and me off the air. Is that the way to talk to a fellow surf? Uh, <laughs> for centuries, the Morgans have been servants of the truth. In fact, I trace my ancestry back to Diogenes Morgan. That's on my mother's side. Yeah? yeah. What's on your father's side? Ananias. 
Who said that? <laughs> On my father's side, I trace Now, my... wait a minute, George Washington. Put away your hatchet for a second. Yeah? If you're so handy with the truth, why did you make up this outrageous lie that you played in The Wizard of Oz in 1904? Well, how did I know that Fred Stone was... I mean, anybody's <laughs> liable to make a mistake once in a while. As a matter of fact, it was a very curious mistake for me to make because it was in 1904 that I invented the, the motion picture camera. Oh, now we're going to get the truth. You've got the nerve to stand there and tell me you invented motion pictures, Mr. Morgan. Screen old Morgan, sir. <laughs> the last of a long line of brownies. <laughs> the, uh, the inventor of the single sprocket, the double exposure, and the triple play. Unassisted. All right, make up your mind, wizard. Are you lying about baseball or about pictures? About baseball. I mean pictures. <laughs> I mean, I'm not lying. Leave him alone, Bob. Say, uh, Frank, I'm a candid camera fiend. Oh, and I just... a fiend, huh? Yes. <laughs> I just bought one last Saturday at Snarley's Camera Shop there on South Vine. Uh-huh. It's a nifty little camera. The girl at the store was very helpful. She showed me all the ins and outs. Uh, she sold me the camera. Like her? Oh, she was all right, but you know how Peggy is about... Oh, you mean the camera. No, uh, it was a... Uh, <laughs> for next year. <laughs> Stealing my stuff. All right, go ahead. <laughs> oh, you mean the camera. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, no, it was a craft of flex. 59 cents with two rolls of film. Oh, this is intolerable. I've got to go and lie down. Frank, I please tell about the camera you invented. I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, it was in 1901 that I first conceived the idea that pictures could be made to move. 1901, huh? Yes. At that time, I was in business for myself as a general inventor occupying a back stoop at 112 Grumble Avenue of the Bronx. That's at the corner of Surly Street. Yes. Uh, is there any money in inventing, Frank? Is there? The fellow that invented Lifesavers made a mint. <laughs> Oh, well, it's the last program. You've got to expect those things. <laughs> First, I invented a spotless spot remover, and then Just I... Just a minute, Frank. Never mind your lesser achievements. Yeah. Let's hear how you invented motion pictures. Uh, motion. Yeah. Uh, what picture? Well, I, uh, while still a schoolboy, I mastered the chemistry of light emulsions and also became familiar with the peephole principle. In those days, I was known as Tom. <laughs> Okay, Tom. Yes, I constructed my first high-speed motion picture camera in 1902, a crude instrument compared to those in use today, but miraculous when you consider that I made it entirely from odds and ends, which I'd purchased at no expense from a junk shop. Hmm. Of course, I don't need to tell you, gentlemen, where that first Morgan camera reposes today. In the junk shop. Yes. It is not. <laughs> it's in the Smithsonian Institution. Good heavens, I'm getting like the cowardly lion. My camera worked like a charm. I was ready to shoot the first motion picture, but I was stumped. No one had invented film. You need that, don't you, Frank? Yes, it was up to me again. I knew that snapshot film was made with celluloid, but how was a poor inventor to come by 500 feet of it with which to make a motion picture? I racked my brains for days and finally hit the solution. You bought it from Eastman? No. <laughs> I made film out of celluloid collars. Frank. What kind of film can you make out of laundry? Technicolor. <laughs> well, that'll hold you for a while. 
Well, how did you make it into film, Frank? Well, it was tremendously difficult. I worked in a dark room, coating each collar with emulsions, splicing them carefully, and piercing the sprocket holes by hand. In two days, I was ready to shoot the picture. You had uh, actors and everything, I suppose. All that, that had been taken care of. Two weeks of shooting, and I was back in my dark room developing the first screen epic. Gee, when's the preview? Three nights later, I previewed it at the old Madison Square Garden in front of an audience of blue bloods, red bloods, and a few anemics. And... <laughs> As soon as the lights went down, the picture hit the screen. What do you think? What? Well, the audience saw nothing but mushrooms. Mushrooms? Where did the mushrooms come from? Well, I forgot to take out the collar buttons. Well, so long, fellas. I'm going back to Baltimore. We're going to try a little experiment now, ladies and gentlemen. We want to present one of the production numbers from The Wizard of Oz. A song sequence greeting little Dorothy when she first arrived in the land of Oz. She's been whirled away from her home in Kansas by a tornado, house and all. And by a strange coincidence, her house lands right on top of a wicked witch in the land of Oz. So the people who live there are very glad to see her. Right after the crash, the natives, who are called munchkins, if you remember, peep shyly out from behind the shrubbery and begin to sing a welcome to Dorothy. Listen. Come out, come out, wherever you are. It really was no miracle. What happened was just this. The house began to pitch, the kitchen circus lich, and suddenly the hinges started to unhitch. Just then, the witch, to satisfy an itch, went flying on her broomstick, thumbing for a hitch. And oh, what happened then was rich. Sparkling songs from the Wizard production. Bert Lars' characterization of the Cowardly Lion. I, the king of the fathers, not queen, not duke, not prince, my regal robes of the fathers. Would it be satin, and not a coffin, and not chintz? 
My heel, all the trees would kneel, and the mountains bow, and the bulls kowtow, and the sparrow would take wee 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 the chipmunks genuflect me, though my tail would lash, I would show compass for every underneath. I, Would be queen of the men. My little man of Manoel, my son of Nobody, not know-how. Not even a rhinoceros? Imposterous. How about a hippopotamus? Why, I trash him from top to bottom. Supposing you met an elephant? I'd wrap him up in cellophane. What if it were a brontosaurus? I'd show him who was king of the forest. How? How? Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast away? Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist of the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the hot and top so hot? What put the ape in apricot? What have they got that I ain't got? Courage. You can say that again. The courage is the thing of kings Which courage I'd be king of kings And the whole year round I'd be held and crowned By King of the Forest by Bert Lauer. Well, now, ladies and gentlemen, the party wouldn't be complete unless all the guests take part in a get-together sing. Come on, everybody. Ray, Bert, Judy, you start us off, Frank Morgan. 
and a ho, 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 and a couple of tra la laws. That's how we laugh the day away in the very old land of Oz. Chirp, 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 and a couple of la-dee-dahs. Then now the crickets crick all day in the very old land of us. We get up at twelve and start to work at one. Take an hour for lunch, and then at two we're done. Oh, jolly good fun! Oh, ha, 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 Oh, in the very old land of Oz. Judy? Somewhere over the rainbow Birds fly Birds fly over the rainbow Why then, oh why can't I Wizard of Oz, the movie's radio preview from the show Good News of 1939, two months before the film's nationwide release, 80 years ago tonight. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the big broadcast, but we want to go out with one more salute to that movie's most famous song. Mr. Arlen and Mr. Harbert had written a verse, an introduction to the song, that doesn't appear in the film and you rarely hear it sung. 
So we'll remedy that now with a recording by Doris Day, who passed away in May of this year. Here she is in a recording released by Columbia Records on October 20th, 1958. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Remember that there's no place like home, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. When all the world is a hopeless jumble And the raindrops tumble all around Heaven opens a magic lane When all the clouds darken up the skyway There's a rainbow highway to be found Leading from your windowpane To a place behind the sun Just a step beyond
I'm Jeffrey Katz, News Director at WAMU, here to remind you that members are the most important source of funding for WAMU's regional newsroom. If you are already a member, thank you. And if you have not yet joined, this is your time to step up. Your donation today will help WAMU continue to provide the news, information, and smart entertainment that you count on. Contribute now at WAMU.org. And thank you.